This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. Hello, and welcome to Jason Kavnis Experience. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. Yesterday is George Tassik. George, thanks for being here today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. So, George, hopefully this is like an easy question for you. But, you know, you have a lot going on like most entrepreneurs do. How do you take care of yourself, like in the physical part and the mental part? Oh, that's, I actually think about that a lot more um, these days than I had in the past because things are getting more intense. Um, I think I, I take a lot of naps. That's one of the things I do. I yeah. love taking a two o'clock nap. Um, when I was nothing, living, nothing better. No, no. And, and when I was living in China, like it, we, they just called it the Chinese nap and it was like a very common thing. And then, you know, you come back to the U S and you know, the concept of taking a nap during your workday is almost like, you know, something's wrong with you or something like that. But I, I think that like, you know, obviously getting good sleep and, and if you're tired, just take a nap and it refreshes you and you're operating at hundred percent after that. So, um, sleep is definitely one part of it, uh, which is challenging when you have kids and family and all that jazz. Um, but, uh, also, uh, eating better, you know, um, I've been doing like intermittent fasting and just basically not eating from 8 PM until noon the next day. Um, and that's actually been pretty helpful. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, especially with all the traveling, like if you're traveling a lot, you're eating a lot of junk food and just garbage airport food and plane food and all that sort of thing. So you do have to monitor that. If you don't monitor that, like, you know, that, that becomes a problem and then your energy goes down and you're not operating at sort of your peak efficiency. And I'm certainly not operating at peak efficiency. <laughs> I mean, like I, 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 I am not a health nut by any standard, but you know, I, I am much more aware of that now than I was say like a couple of years. Yeah. I think the challenge too is like 30 minute nap. Yes. Four hour nap, probably no, right? Yeah, no, yeah, no, no, for sure. Yeah, uh, yeah like if I go over half an hour on a nap, then it, 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 it you know, it's, it's, it goes down. Like the, the, the effect of that nap starts to go down. Um, and, and the only time I'll take a, 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 like a long nap is if I really, you know, if I, if like if I'm jet lagged or I've got like, you know, like one hour of sleep the night before, um, then, uh, then I might go down for, you know, I might just turn the alarm off and actually sleep. And you, you take a nap every day. Like same I try to, period. I try to, yeah, about two o'clock every day. Okay. I start to get drowsy. And, and if I'm doing something more physical, um, like if I'm traveling or if, like a great example is at a convention, a convention or trade show. So if I'm at a convention or trade show where I'm very on and I'm talking to people constantly, I, I enjoy talking to people. And, um, if I'm in that situation, I find that the, the, the drowsiness never really comes in. But if I'm just sitting at my computer by myself in an office, uh, you know, that, then it, it can hit me quite hard. And then I just got to go down for half an hour. And then when I do, I'm back up and I, I yeah. can go till two in the morning and it's no problem. Yeah. So talk about some of the countries you've been traveling to. Uh, so most recently I've been going to Brazil. Um, and then we lived in Hong Kong prior to, uh, living, uh, here in the Pacific Northwest. And, um, and then for the last year we were in Hong Kong, I, I uh, lived more or less lived in the factory we were building in Cambodia. And then since 2006, I've been traveling to China uh, for manufacturing purposes. And then also, you know, within that Vietnam and, and uh, Laos and Thailand and 
Philippines, Indonesia, you know, it's a, a bunch of places. Never Europe, though, oddly. I, I hope I'm going to rectify that in the future, but I've actually never been to Europe. So you're, you're a pretty well-seasoned traveler then. Yeah, yeah, especially especially in Asia. So yeah. Can you give us like any tips or advice on how to become like a better traveler, so to speak? Um, one of the most sort of striking recent developments in my travel kit uh, is just getting a really good suitcase, like to get a really good carry-on suitcase. Um, and then I, I only ever travel with a carry-on and I can go almost indefinitely. I mean, I can go indefinitely with a carry-on because the reality is, is that there's very little that you actually need to take with you because most places, I mean, almost all places that you go, you can buy whatever you need there. So if you do have to stay for longer, um, you know, you can just, if you need extra t-shirts, just go buy some extra t-shirts. You know, if you don't bring a giant bottle of shampoo with you because you don't need it, A, the hotel probably has one. And if you're not staying in a hotel, you can just go to whatever store and get a bottle of shampoo. I mean, you can get like hurt plus anywhere in the world. You know? so. Yeah. Cause there's always, always these people like, you know, they have two outfits every vacation. Yeah. I might go to the beach. I might need a tuxedo, but you don't really need this stuff. Like you see, just, you just buy it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, take, I mean, like when I pack my bag, I have one. So the, I will tout this brand. I don't know if I'm allowed to do that, but I'll tout this brand. It's called uh, Travel Pro. Um, and they're sort of, they're not like the highest end of the high end bags, but they're sort of like one or two levels down. And they're not very, not even, those levels aren't even that dark. Like it's a really nice bag. Um, but it, it, was a, it, was just a, it was just a 22 inch soft side spinner. Tech, technical luggage terms <laughs> there. Um, and it cost me like 350 bucks just for that one bag, but it has made a world of difference because it fits in every overhead compartment. It meets every travel requirement for any plane in any airline in the world. You know, all the parts just move smoothly and function smoothly. I can move through the airport very easily. And, uh, and it, it packs up anything I need for like a three day trip. And then it, and if it goes beyond that, um, you know, like I said, oftentimes I'm just buying stuff when I get to where I'm going or, Oftentimes I, I have a, a, a presence in the country where I'm working in regularly. Yeah. So like in Brazil right now, we have an apartment down in Brazil. Okay. And so I have a bedroom there. That's my bedroom. And, you know, I, 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 every time I go down, I'll either buy some stuff or I'll bring some extra stuff and just leave it there. And so I've got like my stuff down there and I've got like computer monitors and keyboards and all that. So I can just take my laptop and my little carry-on bag and I'm like be able to do whatever. Wherever. Yeah, like I love to travel, but I often say you want to see the worst of your man, you go to airport, right? I, I guess so. I don't know. I'm 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 a very like positive person. Yeah. So like I, I get what you're saying. And there definitely can be some very trying experiences in airports. But um I I've been I've been thinking about this a, a lot in that like in a good analogy for traveling well or for being like sane while traveling is think think of think that you're trying to push your way through molasses. Yeah. And and if you think that you're gonna get somewhere fast and you're gonna try to run there you're going to burn up all your energy in a very yeah. short distance. Whereas if you know that it's going to be, you know, a challenging process to get through the airport or, you know, through customs, whatever yeah. it is, you, 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 you just go through it consistently and slowly and you'll get through it. And, and like, I know people like they go to airport the very last second, right? Yeah. I, I can't do that. No, right? I hate that. Too, I like, my wife's like if, that. If this says, if this says Charles, I'm like two and a half hours, right? Yeah. I would really go there, get stuff done, go home, have a drink, relax, you know, I know so many people, the plane leaves at 11 in the morning. I'll get to the airport at 10. God, that's just, I like have nightmares about that. Yeah, <laughs> I have it, nightmares it drives me basically crazy. Yeah. It does. Yeah. And then like, like talking about, you know, molasses, it would drive me crazy, right? You're in the airplane and like you're in row 35 or like 40, right? And the person stands up 
Yeah. Where, where do you think you're going? I mean, I'm, I'm slightly guilty of that as well. Like I, I always take an aisle seat, yeah. uh, pretty, pretty, I don't, I mean, it's usually pretty easy to get a seat, especially like once you get a little bit of status and you yeah. get a little bit of priority and like picking your seats and all that, it's really easy to, to get whatever seat you want. Yeah. Um, or, you know, in terms of aisle or window. Um, so I always pick the, the aisle because I can, I, I, I am the gatekeeper of the row at that point. Okay. I, I don't have to rely on somebody else. Yeah. And I have no problem. I, I'm willing to accept the responsibility of getting up as many times as, as yeah. anyone else needs to in that row. So I'll accept that responsibility. And then, and then when, when it come times to go, comes time to go, sometimes I just want to stand up. Like, yeah. you know, and, and I'd, rather, I'd rather just stand up. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't try to like pull my bags uh -huh. out and like elbowing people yeah. in the face and stuff like that. But I just wanted to stretch my legs. And if, if I'm going to sit on that tarmac for, you know, you know, 10 minutes or yeah. something like that waiting. To I always have a hard time between window and aisle. Cause I can window cause you, you kind of sort of take a nap. Yeah. But then if you're window, like, man, do I really want to disturb these two other people to go to the bathroom? Yeah. yeah. Like you got to hold it right. You know? Yeah. So yeah. 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 Depends how you travel too. Well, I think, I think that gets, you know, you know, I, we mentioned this before the show, but like, um, you know, anyone who travels a lot has like ugly bathroom stories. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. and so, um, you know, that's one of the other reasons why I'm always on the aisle is because like, I just don't want to have to deal with that yeah. being stuck on the inside and then having to ask to get up to go to the bathroom yeah. if I need to. I remember reading this heck where, of course, it obviously, you know, try to go to the bathroom at your house before you go to the airport or go to the airport bathroom before yeah. the airplane. There's someone said like, you have to use the airplane, uh, the, air, the bathroom, the plane, do it like 20 minutes, when you see them start bringing the food out, yes, use yes, it then. Yes. Like, go then. Or, right? or immediately after your food gets picked up. Because yeah. if you wait, if you wait for very long and after you, you, your food goes away, everyone's getting up to go to the yeah. bathroom at that point. And then it just takes forever. So, Yeah. Do you have a favorite airline? Um, I fly United okay. mostly these days. Um, and that's really just because of where I'm going and the, the, okay. the amount of flights they have there. And, yeah. and, then, and then once, you know, I started flying a lot, I started building up status with that or yeah. with uh, Star Alliance is the, yeah. the, the group of airlines and so once you get that status it really makes it nice because you can get sort of free um economy plus upgrades yeah. and then once you get far enough into their rewards program you can start getting some business class upgrades yeah that's what they always do at least 99 percent of the time always do like, always upgrade economy plus yeah so, economy plus is I worth mean, it i to think me it's worth it, right yeah absolutely yeah business domestic business class is a complete crock i don't yeah. understand how they price domestic business class because yeah okay fine you get a little bit of priority and your seat's a little bit bigger but like it's not until you get onto those international flights and that lay yeah. flat seat where it really starts to make sense. Yeah. And, 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 and then I can kind of see paying, you know, thousands of dollars more. Yeah. If, if you're going for business and you need to be on when you land and, you know, you're crossing a lot of time zones, then, then that starts to add up to some value. But yeah, do me, I, I think the last airline's the same way. Cause I fly them a lot. Yeah. And I, I, I don't see the difference between the first class and the regular seats, right? Very little. I mean, it's mm -hmm. like you get on board, you get a plane first instead of being three or two, but I don't see like the, it's not worth to me the extra thousand dollars or the crazy apparently you got to pay. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. No, not, yeah, absolutely not. I mean, like every once in a while you kind of get lucky and you know, your uh, domestic first class seat is 75 bucks more yeah. than the coach seat. But um, you know, if, if it's, <laughs> if, if it's four times the price, you know, if, if, if you can get economy for 200 bucks and it's 800 to fly uh, yeah. first class, yeah. there's zero point. Like, yeah. I mean, it doesn't make, and I, I, I guess at that point it's all for, you know, uh, flexing you it's basically like your first class is row five and row six is like regular class like yeah you know, like, what and oftentimes those seats are uh, stay those first economy class seats you know that they stand they stay stay relatively open late in, up, up to the when the yeah. flight leaves because you know they do charge a little extra for them so most people just don't opt for them so you yeah. can often get those for and last airline is just like a curtain they pull 
oh, 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 you're not a first class. You're behind yeah, the right. Curve. I know. Yeah. And then half the time they don't even pull it because it's like, I uh, just, what's the point? You know? Yeah. So. so with Brazil, what's some of your, your favorite things about Brazil? Oh, Brazil is, you know, Brazil was very interesting um, because I had spent so much time in Asia. So that was the first time that I'd ever gone to a different, con you, know, a, you know, different part of the world that wasn't in Asia. And um, uh it's very relaxed, like, and it's also very much like the United States. Um, my my wife, um, she works for a, or she used to work for an organization called Freedom House, and they do a a, a index. It's like a Freedom in the World index, and uh, and this may be controversial, uh, but uh, the United States scores eighty three out of a hundred on that that index, and um, uh, Brazil scores like a seventy two or seventy three or something like that. And um, so they're relatively close together. So like Brazil and the United States, they're actually very, very similar. Um, uh, and uh, even the attitudes, just the people are very similar. Like they're outspoken and they're very proud and, and uh, honestly, they're just cool people. Coming from, from a lot of travel in Asia, um, I was actually shocked. I, I, it's kind of a weird way to say it, but like uh, Brazil is actually kind of boring compared to China because it's so much like the United States. There's really not a lot of culture shock when you go there. You know, when you go out to dinner, it's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of steak and a lot of potatoes and bread and cheese and beer. And, you know, when you go and hang out with somebody, you're going to a bar or you're drinking together and stuff like that. Um, whereas China is is like a very, very different environment. And it's, it's much more culture shock in that. So I don't know if you believe the news, Brazil's either, if you believe stereotypes, Brazil's either like the greatest beast in the world and all this crime, right? I'm sure the story's somewhere more in the middle, right? Yeah, I mean... I honestly, like I said, it's very much like the United States. So, I mean, like, I think the problems that we're facing here in the U.S. tend to also, you know, I see similar issues in Brazil. Um, you know, neither is a bad place, but they're also neither is a perfect place. And so, um, you know, I mean, and, and as you travel the world and you see different levels of development and different levels of or different types of political systems and, and you, you know, actually have to work through those and experience them like. I, I think it kind of tempers you to where it's like, okay, this is the situation. I know I can act this way or I have to operate this way. But, uh, you know, I guess nothing really, nothing has phased me in a long time. Like it's yeah. been a while since every, anything's really shocked me. Um, but uh, no, I mean, it's a pretty, it's, I, I, I can't really speak badly about yeah. Brazil at all. I mean, like, you know, it's, it's just, like I said, it's, if, if anything, it's just kind of boring coming from the U.S. because it's just so similar, aside from the language. Yeah. Talk about Cambodia. What's some exciting things about Cambodia? Cambodia is super cool. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's controversial to say, to say what I'm about to say, but at the same time, it's very logical um, in that if you are from a sort of, uh, a Western European-ish country, a place like Cambodia that was colonized by the French, um, you know, many, many decades ago, actually works really in your favor because everything is kind of catering to you. And for them, like Cambodia is such a small company that, or sorry, sorry, a small country that um, the, uh, um, the, the, a lot of the GDP is from tourism. And so, and a lot of it is, you know, Western European type <laughs> of tourism. And so, for me, my experience in Cambodia was fantastic. And it's just, it, you know, it, I mean, I think for anybody, it's a, it's a really interesting place to go. Uh, Angkor Wat, which is, you know, one of the wonders of the world is just unbelievable. I, there was like this like interior chamber in the main section of the temple 
that was just like this, like a, like a lecture hall, but it was all made out of like just massive stones and it was all tiered. And then there was like big columns and there was this outer ring and it was, it was just, there's a sense of history there that, that is like, you really can't find it anywhere else. Like nothing else matches it. Like I'd never, I'd never experienced anything like that before. And I've yet to experience anything like that again. And, and then there's a, and then there's all these temples all around. Like Angkor Wat is a, almost like a complex. It's like a temple complex. It's huge. Um, and you always see the main temple and on the Cambodian flag, it's got like the three spires. Like that's a very common sight, but that, that whole compound is massive. And there's many different sections of it. And, and we, my, my family and I, we did like a bike. We just rode bikes around the whole area. And we were going down one path to try to get somewhere else. And we saw like this weird sort of gateway off in the, in the woods. And we kind of went down there to check it out. And it was super creepy. Like it was isolated off the side. There was like these two doorways that just like receded into blackness on either side of you. And it was like an archway. So it was like, it was, it was the outer wall of the compound. And, um, and, and it was just very unsettling to be in that location. And so I'm like, this is really creepy. And it was cold too. Like Canada is a warm place. And it was like cold right in the spot. And, and then I later Googled it and it was the gate of the dead. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I was like, whoa, I was like, you know, you always hear about like, if there's some sort of like ghostly spiritual activity that the temperature goes down. And I was like, God, that was it. There's a person like spiritual, <laughs> you know, so but um, no, Cambodia is really cool. And then the people are amazing. Like they're super, super friendly. Cambodia doesn't really have its own food. It wasn't that the food was bad there, but again, like it's that French colonial influence. And so, um, you know, eating a lot of French food, yeah. uh, uh, Laos and Vietnam are the same way. Like it's like amazing French food in those locations. Um, a lot of good breakfast, um, like continental type breakfast because the pastries are all amazing, good croissants and, yeah. and everything like that. Yeah. Like I said before, I was in Vietnam for like in September for yeah. three days. You can definitely tell the French influence, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you tell the French influence, even though I haven't been there for a while. Yeah. 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 So, so, I mean, like I said, like that's somewhat controversial to say like, Hey, colonialism was great and it works great for us now, but yeah. like, you know, back in the day, it wasn't such a good yeah. thing. So, um, but no, I mean, I think that, you know, you, you know, I guess that could be chalked up to sort of like making lemons out of lemonade. You know, you take your circumstances and you do the best you can with them. And, and I think, you know, those, that part of the world has done fairly well with that. Yeah. Like, like these kinds of like Vietnam, like, is this like crazy how advanced they are, right? Oh gosh, Vietnam's and, amazing. And yeah. like you come, the, the advances they made since the seventies is yeah. like this awe inspiring, right? Of yeah. course, there's still like you know the stuff there. You know, like like uh, I took a lot of pictures. They're building like this building in flip flops. Yeah. No, there's no also over there. You know. Yeah, yeah. So things, yeah, but like just the the architecture is beautiful. Yeah. Did you did you have to like walk across the street in Vietnam? I call it the Walk of Death. Yeah, yeah. You look over to one side and say Wall of of like scooters and mopeds yeah. and there's like hundreds of them just waiting yeah. to go. And, and, like, and I think it works because like no one's speeding. Everyone goes the same speed, yeah. you know, like, yeah. yeah. Well, they say that you, when you cross the street and, and I, I think this holds true in a lot of Asian countries is when you walk, when you cross the street, there's not a lot of, um, uh, well, depending on where you go, like Japan is super orderly, but like in a lot of the sort of smaller Southeast Asian countries, there's a lot less order surrounding like traffic. Yeah. And so if you walk across the street or if you're going to walk across the street, when you walk across the street, um, do do so decisively yes. and and like consistently. Yeah. You the worst thing to do is to get freaked out and stop because then everyone's got to adjust to yeah. you. If 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 they see you at it from a distance and they the see you walking, walking the they're gonna they're gonna be tracking you and they're gonna be making their moves well yeah. in advance to get around you. And if you break that sort of flow, yeah. <laughs> it's a, that actually in in Japan I I ended up breaking that flow in the subway because there was like this one intersection in the subway like it's all tunnels down there and it was like eight 
eight hallways all meeting in this like rotunda. And it was just, I don't understand how people get through that on a daily basis without just, just massive collisions of, of humanity. I, I was a complete foreigner in that situation. Like I, yeah. I was getting bumping into people and everything else like that. It was funny. The first day there, I was like scared shitless, right? So yeah. I was like, right by my friend across the street. By the, by the ninth day, I was fucking walking through traffic circles, yeah. everything yeah. like yep. that. No big yep. deal. Yeah. And you, and you get really used to that. And that was actually something I've noticed um, in, you know, I've been back in the U S for a while now, but like when I first came back, that was something that I noticed was it was like, I just had like a complete disregard for the order of what we do in the U S and not, not so much with driving. Like I was always still careful when driving, but like, there's just so many things you do in Asia where it's not even a, a thought. Like it's like a, it's, it's like here in the U S if you do them, it'd be considered rude and therefore it prevents you from doing it. But over there, oftentimes it's either not rude or not even thought of yeah, and you just yeah. do it, you know? And so once you live there for a while, you get used to that sort of mentality. And then, and then you come back to the U S and you're kind of, you know, crossing some social boundaries sometimes because you're either, you know, too open or forward or just doing things without asking or whatever else. So you're like this. So I, I, I was doing the walk of death in Asia, right? In Vietnam, come back to the States. First day back, I almost started doing the walk of death here. Yeah, right. Yeah. I was like, oh shit, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Exactly. I'm about yeah. to kill myself. <laughs> right. Well, and I, and I think that's, that's what I realized um, after living abroad and spending so much time overseas and then coming back, um, I, I noticed that um, <laughs> there, there's, relative you know relative to the chaos there's few accidents in asia yeah um i mean it's not that they don't happen and some can be very significant but like you don't see as many as you think with yeah. that much chaos right but 10 days out there we've seen like one one person get hit by a scooter yeah right, right exactly yeah yeah so it does happen but you, you would think it would happen a lot more but the thing is like they're expecting that chaos like they know what's like they can look at they can read the yep. situation on the road and they understand how it's all going to play out um and in the U.S., we rely on like traffic signals yep. and brake lights and like all these other cues. And so, if you break that um, sort of uh, car language, mm -hmm. you know, like like if you break that visual language yeah. as you're as you're traversing the the roads, um, it, you can really screw things up and get into a way more serious accident because yeah. nobody's expecting you to just start walking across no, the street. No. You know? Like so. Vietnam, you know, my friend joking like, you know, every day in Vietnam, especially in Saigon. You almost die hundreds of times a day. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, every day you come that cross, that dying, you know, right, right. cars and stuff, you know. Yeah. Another thing I like about Vietnam too, and people probably get mad, disagree with this. To me, the people in Vietnam are way more entrepreneurial than here in the states. Like, like in Vietnam, I, yeah. it, it was like yeah. everywhere you go, they're trying to sell you stuff. Yep. And now it was annoying that you sit in a restaurant and they come and try to sell you stuff. Like, dude. Yeah. I'm trying to eat here. Right. Right. But like, this is the hustle I have. Right. It was the hustle. Impressive. Yeah. No, the hustle. The hustle is real. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just like that in Vietnam. Like, I think that's. I don't know if that's, I don't, I don't know how to define that. Like if that's an Asian mm -hmm. type of yeah. attribute, like cultural attribute. It's or, like, they or gather, it's, like they get some dead flowers on the road and try to sell it to you. Yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, some of that stuff is kind of, that, some of that stuff you, you got to be careful about praising it too much because there's a lot of like um, beggar gangs yeah. and things like that yeah. that yeah. Can, will, will too, like yeah. mutilate children. Yeah, in, one that can, yeah. carrying the baby around and stuff. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You some might, of that might, stuff can get really nefarious, yeah. but, but I think generally speaking that the, like the, the, increased hustle from Asian cultures is a noticeable thing. And, and it's a very real thing. Um, and I don't know if that's attributed to, you know, like poverty, like mm -hmm. these, these, a lot of these countries had a lot less wealth and yeah. now they're starting to, you know, come yeah. up in wealth and, and they just, they, they want it more. And so they're like pushing it a lot yeah. harder. Like, I don't know if it's that or if it's just something in the culture and, and, that and, enables And, 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 and they don't so. take no for answer. Yeah. You yeah. tell them no 10 times. You know? Yeah. So my best story was like, me and my friend Kim was walking around and this guy walked to my friend, hey, um, had flip-flops on. Yeah. 
my guy had shoes. I like, hey, can I give you a shoe sign? He's like, no, not today. Next time I see you, right? Yeah. You know, you know, thinking I'll never see this guy again in my life. Three days later, tapping the filter. Next time, I like, damn. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> damn. Yeah. So he just gave some money. I don't need to show him some money, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like damn, like all the I think all the people you saw through the last three days, you yeah. remember Kevin, right? Yeah. One thing about like Vietnam, like the, the street food just fabulous, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just like all the stuff you eat, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the the, the my my favorite thing are just like the rolls, all yeah. of the all the fresh rolls and everything yeah. else like that. Yeah. Of course, some things you probably don't want to know you're eating, right? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, that's. I mean, you know, China was really good for that. Like, I mean, I know they do it everywhere, and and you know, you sometimes you don't even know what you're eating. Like, I was told at one point, so you know, you ask, you ask, like, what do you, what is, what is this? What am I eating? Oh, this is good. What am I, what am I eating here? And they'll say, are you eating pigeon? And then I, I later learned that pigeon was a, a nice way of saying rat. Okay. And so, <laughs> so like, yeah. then, then I, once I learned that sort of, you know, yeah. little polite way of saying it, um, uh, you know, it was uh, like, I'm like, how many times have I eaten pigeon? Before? Yeah, <laughs> you know? so. yeah sometimes I don't know. Yeah. Um, so Brazil, Cambodia, China, you're, you're all there for like business reasons, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Hong Kong, we actually lived there. Okay. And then, um, but everywhere else was just, and I mean, I guess I lived in Cambodia. I mean, it was kind of like my family was in Hong Kong and, and I was in Cambodia and I would spend like four weeks or so in Cambodia and then come back to Hong Kong for like a week or 10 days or something. And then it bounced back and forth. But that year was pretty much all Cambodia. So okay. I did, I did kind of live for, for a year. Is a country you have not traveled to yet that you want to go to? Uh, is there, is there, is there a country I would like to go to? Oh, there's, I mean, I like to go, I would like to go to all the countries. I mean, you know, uh, the one country, uh, I think Latvia, mm -hmm. I think it's Latvia. I think it was Latvia. Um, there is this woman in Cambodia who was, you know, in the expat circle. I met her, she's the most beautiful woman I had ever seen in my life. And then I met another woman and she was like the, like, the second most beautiful person <laughs> I've ever seen. And they were both from Latvia. Yeah. And I'm like, damn, I got to go to Latvia. <laughs> so, so that like Eastern European, you know, countries, I, I, I would, I'm, I'm very curious to go to those countries. Yeah. I, I want to go to Norway for some reason. Norway not, sounds cool. Yeah. I have no idea why I just cold and dark there, you know, but I won't go to Norway. Well, I had reason. a friend who sort of uh, left Hong Kong after uh, China started kind of encroaching on, on the freedoms of Hong Kong. And um, the, he, he went, he ended up in, uh, Finland. He ended up in Finland and, uh, you know, he'd send me pictures and he'd talk about, you know, how, how, uh, you know, it worked there. And, and it was, it seemed really, really cool. And then like going back to that freedom house score, I, I, that, that freedom, those, those global scores that freedom house does, I'd like to use that. It's kind of like going to the state department. If you're going to travel, you go to the state department website yeah. and you kind of brush up on what's going on okay. in the country. So Freedom House is really good because they provide really comprehensive reports on every single country. So it's good for business and it's also good for uh, travel just to kind of understand political situations and what you're getting yourself into when you go to these places, especially if you're going to do business in them and like sign contracts and yeah. all that sort of thing. So I, I use that Freedom House um, uh, score and the, the reports that go along with it. And um, all of the Nordic countries are like 100 out of 100. Yeah, I mean, easily, like they, they yeah. sound like amazing places, yeah. you know. So from your time in Brazil, Cambodia, or Hong Kong, have you ever felt like in danger person, like for like getting robbed or crime or anything like that? Um, not in a violent way. I mean, in Hong Kong, before uh, China came in and kind of started changing things, it was, I had a joke where you could leave your laptop in the middle of like a park and you could come back like several hours later and someone will have like 
dusted your keyboard and wiped off your screen and it'd still be sitting there. Like that's how safe and, and sort of comfortable things were there. Um, I don't think that's changed dramatically uh, in the last few years, but uh, I, I have been told things have kind of started to degrade there a bit. But even still, like that's, you know, that, that's more petty stuff. Like I, I don't really, there's a lot of scams, I think, but I've, I've been traveling and, you know, internationally for so long that I've become kind of attuned to the scams and just stay away from before I ever get involved in them. So uh, I don't really encounter so many of those anymore. There was one time in Cambodia where I was in a tuk-tuk and we were driving down the street to just like, I think it was like a hamburger joint. Um, and, we, you know, I like to eat the local food. I actually prefer eating the local food more than foreign food in a foreign country because the locals know how to make their food well. They don't necessarily know how to make your food well. So it's all, I, th I think it's always the smart choice to, to go for the local food over something that you're more comfortable, comfortable with, like a pizza or a burger. But in this particular situation, we just wanted a hamburger. And so we were going for this place and we were in a tuk-tuk and we're driving down the street and another tuk-tuk driver pulls up next to us and he's like pointing and waving and, and like trying to draw my attention to something. And I didn't see it, but there was like a six-year-old kid hanging off the back of our moving tuk-tuk. Like he had jumped on at some point when it slowed down. And he had his hand in through the bars of the seat, trying to pick pocket, pick my pot, pick oh, my wallet shit. out of my pocket. Oh, wow. And um, uh, ultimately when that other tuk-tuk driver kind of drew, drew our attention to him, the kid jumped off and ran away. But like, I almost felt like I wanted to just like give him my money for the yeah. effort because I was like, well, hey, look, if you're going to jump onto a moving vehicle just to steal my money, like you, you need it more than I do. Yeah. When the army were in Soker for three years, right? With my wife and kids, like the train system, like you just like, four or five-year-old kids on the train by themselves going to school, different things. Like, and that would never happen in the States, right? Yeah. So it's very safe. Yeah, there. no, it's true. And, and it went, when we were in Hong Kong, like when my daughter was five years old, we were like, so when can we send her on the public bus to get her, to get to priest or to get to kindergarten, you know? And cause like they did have a, they like everything there, everything in Hong Kong, uh, they have a public system, but if you're a foreigner and you don't speak Cantonese, that, that can be a very hard integration. So there's a lot of international schools, which, I mean, you've probably yeah. you have seen it or experienced yeah. it, friends that have experienced it. And, and so the international schools, it's basically like a private school, so everything you have to pay for. So um, at the time we were paying for, you know, the bus just to yeah. pick up my daughter at our apartment. And uh, um, we were like, it is expensive. And so we're just like, when can we send her on the public <laughs> bus, you know, so. Now, do you speak any foreign languages? Not really. Okay. Uh, I mean, in, and I, and, I, and I regret that, you know, a fair amount. Um, but at the same time, you know, if you're, if you're doing, especially if you're in a place for business, you're there for a reason. Oftentimes, especially with manufacturing, especially with China, you know, you're a customer of theirs. So it makes sense that they are going to accommodate you in speaking your language. Um, Brazil, it, you know, much like in the United States, you know, that sort of, sort of misguided mentality of like, well, if you're not going to conform to our system, then get out, you know, yeah. kind of thing. Brazil kind of has the same thing. So like people in Brazil are like, so when are you going to learn Portuguese? Yeah. Like the second trip in. And I'm like, yeah. I've been here for two weeks now. Yeah. Like I don't know Portuguese. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, but I, I think that um, because Brazil seems to be the, the way forward for me and for our business, I think that um, I, I will learn Portuguese. Uh, I, I think I'm going to go for some level of fluency just because if I'm going to build a factory there and I'm going to have staff there, even though my partner is, he's from Uruguay and um, he, uh, you know, speaks fluent Portuguese and Spanish and yeah. English. Like, you know, he can do that translation, but you know, he's not as technically minded as I am with the manufacturing and like the machinery and the automation and stuff like that. So if I have to communicate something, sometimes that can be, it, it's just easier if I'm, if I'm saying it myself rather than, 
trying to explain it to him and then he's explaining it to somebody else. Yeah. So let's do a drink real fast. Yes, absolutely. We want for this one? Yeah, whatever one you want. I mean, we don't have to do it fast. We can pour it yeah. relatively quickly, but I feel like this should be a sip, not a... Yeah. Yeah, we're, not, we're definitely not doing shots. Yeah, really. Cheers, my friend. Cheers. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. So, a um, couple years ago, you, you obtained a patent. Yeah. So, can you talk through the whole process? Like, why did you get a patent? Was it hard, easy? Well, I, cost, no, it, for me, it was super easy. I didn't have to pay anything for it. Um, it, it was actually, I had de developed a, so, in the fireworks world, you know, we have regulations like any other industry. And um, I am quite good at looking at the regulations and then like seeing a hole in the regulations that I can thread a product through. And there was, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of regulations that surround um, not interlinking devices. So like one firework you can't have like two fuses, like one's the infuse and one's the outfuse, and it's intended to string a whole bunch of devices together. But if you look at the sort of letter of the law, um, the uh, I, I found a way, like I found a hole in the law that basically allowed me to create a, a system, and we ultimately called it Chainlink. And um, so the Chainlink system, you can butt two devices up next to each other, and they have like sort of overlapping tubes. And one fires up through, and there's like a hidden fuse on the inside, and it meets all of the requirements and regulations. And no one had thought to do that. And before. well, so it was one of those weird situations. Where I later found that someone else had tried to do it, and when we went back and did some of the patent searches, like people had kind of been on that track, but there was always something. Like there was one element of the other designs that violated was like a hard violation of a regulation. And so this was the first time where anyone had done it in a way that truly just didn't violate any of the regulations. And um, uh, even, even when it doesn't violate the regulations, that doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to buy it um, because it, it's, it comes down to the um, uh, appetite for liability on the part of the business, on the, of the buyer. Like if something is, you, you, and there's, this happens a lot in fireworks where you have like someone who's really riding up against the, the law hard, like in a way that's maybe not as responsible as they could be for like their long-term prosperity of their business but they want to make a quick buck. And so they'll kind of exploit like a little loophole. And oftentimes those ones where it's like, a, it's clearly a, a, something that was missed when creating the law and, and, and now it's being exploited and it's a hazard. So it, it gets patched up pretty quickly. Um, but you know, if you're, if you're writing the law, if you're writing on the law really hard, like right up against the edge of it, and um, it's, it's not particularly a responsible thing to do from a business, like from a liability insurance standpoint, um, a good business is going to say, you know what, I, I'm just not going to deal with that, you know. Um, but in, in this case, this this chain link system that I created, um, it it was like far enough away from the edges of the law where it really did keep the spirit of the law, but it also allowed something that had never been done before. And so there was actually another company, um, the, the, the same company that is uh, behind me with Toucan Fireworks, um, is they, they are the ones that wanted to put, you know, pay for the patent and do all the work for the patent and everything like that. And then I just signed sort of like a licensing deal with them. And then they license that out to other people. And, and that I, I haven't, I've seen it, like they've had it on the market, um, but the deal was with them was anyone else they license it to or any uh, like award from any lawsuit, if someone violates the patent, I get a percentage of those, those things, but they can use it themselves all they want. So it's, it's on the market and it's out there and people are using it and enjoying it. But 
I haven't seen any money. And this is a U.S. patent? U.S. patent, yeah. So how does it work? Like, you have a U.S. patent. Can you go, like, you know, Brazil and, and honor the patent in there? You have to get, you have to get a patent? For uh, no, you, you have to. You, so I haven't, I haven't crossed that ground. I haven't covered that ground yet in trying to do that. But as I understand it, you can, if you have a patent in a place like the United States, that's, you know, relatively, relatively well-respected from a legal standpoint. Um, you can use the patent in the U.S. to sort of justify the patent in Brazil, and the, and it can move the process a little faster. But um, no, essentially, you've got to get patents in, in each country that you're. And so, like, what kind of protection does a patent really give you? Like, suppose like John Bob in Tennessee, like copies the idea, starts selling it, right? What what yeah. protection does you really get from this? Patent? Yeah. So, I mean, if you have the money to defend the patent, it provides you with a tremendous amount of protection. But you have to have the money and be willing to defend the patent. And I think that's where. Patents don't make a, and that's why like I would have never applied for this as a patent myself. And this gets also kind of ties back into China and sort of the, the like total lack of intellectual property protection in China, especially if you're a foreigner. So, you know, the, if, 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 if you try to make any innovation in China, it's immediately stolen and propagated to all of the competitors. And you, you basically, there's no value in innovation uh, when you're, when you're sourcing from China. And so, um, it, it, like in the U.S., you you have the patent, but if you can't defend the patent, then what's the point of the whole patent in the first place? So, you know, if you have the money to defend it, then it can be a lot of protection. But if you don't have the money to, to defend it, just don't even bother with it. Just try to innovate faster. That, that's what I always tried to do in China. Like I couldn't defend any of my ideas in China. I couldn't keep them from getting into everyone's hands. But I could just innovate faster than everybody else, and you know, keep coming up with new ideas that would always keep me like a year or two ahead of everybody. Yeah. So the idea you patented, where do you get the idea from? Say that again? The idea that you, did, you, had, that you patented? Oh, oh, where did I get it from? Uh, yeah. Literally, like, I just, like, I, like what I started out saying, which was I look at the regulation and I see, I look for holes. And so, like, you know, there's, uh, there's multiple regulations that will govern a, 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 a pyrotechnic device. And so um, you, you start with, the, you know, sort of the most obvious one. And if you can pass through that check, it's like, okay, well, what's the next barrier? And what's the next barrier? And what's the next barrier? And if you can find a hole through all of them, then you're like, oh, okay, well, I got something here. Let's see if this is like, can we, can, you know, I found a hole. Can I actually produce a product that fits this? And um, is it something that people are going to want to buy? And then, you know, all those other normal, normal business sort of validations. So what makes something a pyrotechnic device? Is there a number of boom or a number of... No, it's anything that's, anything, that's, anything that's pyrotechnic. So basically, if you have a fuel and an oxidizer mixed together and you're in, you know, a tube, which is commonly how things are, are configured, um, that's a pyrotechnic device. Okay. So, and, then, and then within that, um, the, there's different regulations. So like the regulation to get fireworks from, say, China to the United States, you're dealing in international transportation. So that's one set of regulations. And then when you get into the United States... You have the U.S. Department of Transportation and the PIMSA, Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration. Like, there's all these other groups within the United States that have their own sets of laws that govern various things. And so, um, uh, you know, a pyrotechnic device could can, can be a very wide range of things, but it's all going to fit into these categories and all has to be handled, you know, within these regulations and else like that and then consumer a consumer device is different than a professional device which is different from a device intended for like theatrical purposes or they call them, sometimes call them technical pyrotechnics or like stage like concerts and things like that or or um, indoor theater performances uh, and then and then you start getting into the realms of of munition or like industrial explosives and then munitions and things like that so it's all kind of the same world but different striations 
So I was going to say that I presume that that like power connects are not trapped are not like um, shipped on a plane because the plane can blow up. But obviously it can, it can blow up on a ship too. Yeah. So how are power connects all this kind of stuff? How is it shipped? Um, I mean, or transported. So to yeah. Speak. I mean, you can certain classes of pyrotechnics you can ship by air, um, but it has to be certified and tested and packaged in a certain way and then declared in a certain way. And it's a very limited amount that you can actually. And I bet they told the pastors all the pastors get the fuck off the plane. <laughs> well, they, well, they, well, and that's what that's one of the, so so that's one of the things that they that that There's they. dynamite here. Yeah, no, no, thank no, you. no, no, thank you. It, it never those things actually are prohibited from transporting <laughs> on any plane with passengers. So there is some commercial cargo that's like under your feet when you're on a on a commercial airline, but any kind of pyrotechnics in that situation, it has to be on like a cargo only okay, plane. So, okay. so, and that, then, that's good to know. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're never going to accident. You're never just going to like end up with like some kind of explosives under your feet, <laughs> you know, in, in the, in the storage area. Um, and it's, it's kind of the same thing with, um, uh, with shipping, like, like ocean freight as well. So certain carriers won't take explosives and certain carriers will only, only take certain classes of explosives. And, and, uh, um, and of the ones that do, they will put them on a on the bow of the ship because it's as far away from the crew as possible, it's like a, as far away from the yeah. mast or I don't know, I don't call the tower or whatever it is on those big cargo ships. Um, it's as far away from from the people on the ship as possible, and it also gets loaded last and taken off first. And so that's one of the things with with anything pyrotechnic, um, and you know fireworks, and it, it could be anything pyrotechnic. It could be munitions, could be bla you know commercial explosives, could be uh, you know fireworks, but you you want to move it through. You never want to amass a large quantity in it, I mean, for obvious reasons, but you, but it, but you always want to keep moving it through. And so, um, that's actually something like with pyrobotics. Um, the, one of the things I'm trying to do with pyrobotics is develop continuous automated production systems. Um, so that you never have a large quantity of material anywhere in the production process. And then you, and then you can produce it on demand. So it's, it's literally being, you know, made and just shipped and moved and ideally straight to the consumer and then you know used as intended you know shot for some celebratory purpose and then it's gone and doesn't exist yeah. anymore and, and and so you shorten that time and and if you can shorten the volume and the time that you know the volume of the volume of material and the time that exists in the world then that's where your safety comes from. yeah so like fireworks like those bottle rockets roman candles all different kind of fireworks whatever are the ingredients the same in all these fireworks? Yeah, yeah, okay. very, very much the same. So, what, yeah. are, what are the ingredients? Um, so, like, there's like the common oxidizer is potassium perchlorate, um, and there can be like potassium nitrate, um, and there's like ammonium <coughs> nitrate. Some, some things are more sensitive, so they get restricted. Um, like, they're they're more sensitive to like friction or heat or impact, like less stable, um, and so they get restricted out of a lot of fireworks just because it just creates an unnecessary hazard. Um, but uh, and then like red would be like strontium makes red, barium makes green, sulfur makes yellow, um, copper makes blue. Um, and then within that, you've got like aluminums. And then it's not, it's not only just the type of chemicals, also the, the, like the geometry of the particulate, right? That's the best way to say it. But like a aluminum flake is going to burn different than aluminum dust. Um, you know, aluminum dust is often used in the really high powered, uh, like those big chest, it's like a big white ball in the sky. It's a big chest thumping boom. They call those salutes. And that's, that's going to be a very fine aluminum that's going to produce that effect. Whereas if you take the same aluminum, but it's in like a flake form, it's going to glitter and slow. Like it's going to be like those willow fireworks you see like kind of hanging and dripping down out of the sky. So the, uh, like the, the geometry of the particle also has something to do with the effect in the sky. And it's, it's a matter of mixing the chemicals and the proportions and the oxidizers and binders. And then also the, 
physical construction of the device can get, give different effects. And you know, there's it's it's a uh, it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of uh, chemistry and physics and you know, artistry all kind of combined together. So if people making these fireworks. Do you have some kind of chemist degree, science nope. in the background? Or is that some random people? No, nope, random dude. Random dude that got into it. Yeah. Okay. There's very few people. There's one guy who passed away in the last few years um, by the name of John Conkling who taught. He was a professor at, at a, I forget which university in Missouri. And um, he was very prominent in the fireworks industry. But to my knowledge, he's like the only guy that like really touted himself as a, you know, professional chemist, uh, educator, like had like real credentials behind him. Everybody, all, almost everybody else gets into it either through a family connection or through uh, just a genuine interest in the form, in the art form. Yeah, this is kind of also subject, but like the longest time I thought, you know, like, you know, like we send like the rovers, the different yeah. Mars and Pluto, whatever. I always unimpressed that people made, like actually made the rovers for like scientists, PhD people. Yeah. Then I learned from the NASA form when they know it's like regular people, like just mechanics. Yep. Of course, they they were like very like great their craft and stuff, you know. And the people tell me to do like this blew my mind. Like, yeah, I have a GED, you yeah. know. I dropped out of high school. I learned how to trade. Now, yep. now I make the Mars rovers. And yeah, it, and it, like, it blew my mind, right? Because I yeah. always thought like to make this, you had to have like some kind of engineering degree, right. technical degree. But right. no, it's just I, mean, I don't say regular people. Like, it's like a random person. But like, yeah, yeah. Obviously, they're very good at what they do, or obviously, would have the job. But like, just yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and 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 I run into that all the time as well because like again, like. With pyrobotics, I'm trying to do, you know, in like manufacturing automation, which is not something I, I'm not a mechanical engineer, but the thing is, I know so much about fireworks. I know so much about how it has been done that I can look at it and say, well, what if we just did it this way? You know, what if you change this thing? What if you change that thing? What if you change that thing? And, you know, that would make the process so much faster. And oftentimes it's not the person that is the best in that position is not necessarily the one who's like the most trained or educated. Yeah. It's the person that sees and understands like the bigger picture and can actually draw that line from point A to point B. And it's the same thing down in Brazil is, uh, you know, the, the, uh, um, the Brazilian factory owners, like Brazil existed outside what we know as like globalism, <laughs> which was very much like a U.S. led effort between like Europe and China and other certain countries that participated in that system. Brazil, like India, kind of existed for the last 70 years outside of that system. You're talking they, about that new BRICS thing? No, no, no. I'm talking about globalism. So globalism. like what we know today is globalism. Like when you hear the term globalism, a lot of people assume that means like international trade, but globalism is a very specific initiative promoted by the United States post-World War II to prevent further wars, saying essentially if we're all doing business together, we all stand so much to lose by going to war with anyone yeah. that no one will just go to war anymore. You know, we'll, yeah. just, we'll just do business together. And that was really only... Uh, um, there were certain participants, there's certain countries participated in that heavily, and there's other countries that didn't participate in, in it at all. And so Brazil is, is one of those countries that didn't really participate in globalism. So when, when I went down there for the first time to look at Brazil as a potential alternative to China, they, um, uh, they were, it's like super casual down there. Like, like, and then we, we, we pushed and pushed and pushed, and then we got the first container of fully compliant, legitimate fireworks like the first container ever to go from Brazil to the United States. We accomplished that in, in April of, of 2023. Um, and, and it hit the market of, uh, on the, uh, for the 4th of July season last, last summer. And, uh, and, it, and it, it got a good response. But when we went back for like more containers, and okay, well, that, we, we succeeded in that first attempt. Let's now do five containers. And um, they're all like, well, you know, we're going to make our prices higher. And they were already 100% higher than China. 
And, and, you know, we just, we're not really that ambitious. Like a lot of them, they just want to reinvest their money in like farm farming or cattle or something like that. And they'd rather just sit on the porch and watch the sunset with a beer than be like, have these global ambitions of like growing a giant international business. And so going down to Brazil, um, you know, we, we went down or like now our, our perspective on the situation is rather than waiting for the existing factories and owners to kind of gain interest or to get on board with it. We're just going to buy a factory. And we're just going to modernize it and do it ourselves. And the ecosystem for manufacturing fireworks is really good in Brazil, but the, um, the, the ambition just isn't there. And it's not, it's nothing against anyone down there. Like they're all doing great business and they're all really cool people. They just don't have the ambition because they weren't part of that globalized system that the United States, that, that I've been part of for my entire career. <laughs> and, um, so, uh, you know, in buying a factory, people are like, well, how do you know how to do that? And I'm like, I mean, like I, I, I have, you know, these experiences, I helped build a factory in Cambodia and I been sourcing out of China. So like, I see all this stuff and I know that if we do this and this and this, it will be better here, yeah. but, but I'm not an engineer. I'm not, you know, I don't have this specific technical educational background, but I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's the, it's those people that can kind of see a broader picture and connect those dots. They're the ones that actually break new ground because if you're, you know, you know, oftentimes if you're just stuck in one way of doing things, you only, only ever follow a linear path and it never leads off on weird tangents. In Brazil, I know in Europe, especially Italy and Spain had like do siestas, right? Where everything shuts down from 12 to noon to 3 mm -hmm. p.m. Is Brazil the same way? No, I haven't noticed it. No, okay. I mean, it, it, people are much more casual there. Like, I mean, Brazil is, it's a very chill place, especially out where, the, where all the fireworks are being made. It's, it's sort of uh, eight hours north of Sao Paulo. And, um, in the state of Minas Gerais. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of liken it to the Pennsylvania of Brazil, okay. you know? So it's like, it's not far from everything, but it's yeah. also not really close to anything. And, and the, it's a, it's a relatively small town. I think it's like 25,000 people and the neighboring town has maybe hundred, maybe not, 100, but, you know, it's got more people, but still these are relatively small municipalities and it's out in the countryside, beautiful farmland, toucans flying around. That's why we've got the name toucan fireworks from. So, um, is there any danger like liability stuff, for example, like suppose someone uses a firework yeah. from your factory and it takes someone's eye out? Yep. Any danger that person suing your company? Oh, absolutely. It happens all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, we don't want it to happen and we do everything we can in the industry to minimize those risks. Um, you know, I think I, I, I would say that there's probably no industry out there that cares so much about consumer safety as the fireworks industry because the ramifications of not caring about consumer safety are, are so detrimental that we just couldn't be in business if we didn't care highly about it. So, um, you know, there's, we, we do a lot of safety campaigns. We do a lot of internal um, quality control. Like even like the industry has a group called the American Firework Standards Laboratory. And it, when, when, when they came down to Brazil to test, everyone thought they were the government. And granted, the guy who runs it now, he used to work for, for the Consumer Product Safety Commission. But um, they're, they're a private entity that, and, and the, the, the fireworks companies pay them to do this testing to make sure that uh, we've confirmed that these devices will meet all the regulations before they ever even come into the country. And, uh, and then once they're in the United States, uh, you know, there's the safety at the point of sale in terms of ed trying to educate consumers about, you know, do this or don't do that and handing out leaflets uh, on firework safety and doing running PSAs and having education. We have an, the industry has an educational campaign um, where we made curriculum for elementary and, and high school, well, K through 12 uh, educational curriculum, teaching about the art and the science and the physics and the chemistry of 
fireworks along with how to use things safely and everything else like that. So the industry does quite a lot in a very genuine way about safety because it's just, it, it's, uh, it's really like destructive to us as a business if, if all of our customers are getting injured. But like, you know, it was just New Year's Eve, like in, like in Seattle, like hit those big fireworks display, right? Mm -hmm. These people do the big fire displays. They have to have some kind of certification or can anyone yeah. just say, I'm Jason Kev, I'm blow up a bunch of fucking fire. No, so yeah, so the, the, on the professionals, there's two sort of category, well, like three categories. There's the consumer fireworks, the display fireworks is the technical term. That's the professional fireworks. And then there's the uh, technical pyrotechnics, which is what you're gonna see like in Hollywood, like movie production and stuff like that. And so on the consumer fireworks side, anyone can just go out and buy. There's no federal, there's some federal regulations, but there's no federal restriction on buying consumer fireworks. Um, that, th those laws that restrict fireworks, uh, you know, sale or possession or usage, that's at a municipal level or, or sorry, state at a state and municipal level. So the state may have one law and if the state is open to it, usually they'll leave it open that the municipality can just make whatever laws they want to restrict it. And, and I, I think it's best to do that where the higher up in the like governmental levels you go, the less regulation there is because with fireworks, it's kind of like a really, uh, you know, specific to your immediate circumstances. So like, if, like, you know, if we're in the middle of Seattle, it's super dangerous to shoot fireworks because the population density is high. There's people everywhere. There's cars everywhere. There's tall buildings and your fireworks may not clear the tall buildings. And then they've got flaming debris bouncing off and stuff like that. So it's really, it's not a good place to let the con consumers just freely shoot fireworks here. But then you go, you know, a little bit out into more suburban area or even more rural area. Suddenly there's tons of space. And so like Seattle might ban it, but the next town over might, you know, allow it because it makes more sense and it's relatively safe to shoot in that environment rather than here. So uh, from, from a regulator, regulatory standpoint, that's generally how it plays out. Yeah. So this is probably a good thing. We don't do this no more. I guess I don't think we do. But I remember being a kid having bottle rocket fights all the time, right? Yeah. Get a Coke bottle for the rockets. And, and I don't remember anyone ever getting hit for some reason, right? Yeah, yeah. It was a fucking course miracle, right? Yep. I just remember having so much fun, like going to the neighborhood, everyone, all the kids that's Bottle rocket fights, you know, through bottle yep. rocket. I, I don't remember any fires, nothing bad happening, no eyes yeah. popped out. But of course, I don't, I'm pretty sure I don't do it anymore. I'm pretty sure it's been outlawed. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That was so much, so much, I remember having so much fun doing that. Well, that was, I mean, it was, so there's a, I forget the specific way it's, 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 uh, it's phrased, but there's a, there's required warning labels on every um, fireworks device. And the, the, the gist of the of the warnings is to say basically if used as intended then there's a you know reasonable level of safety you know these can be used yeah. with a reasonable level of safety the pro what you're talking about is not using it as intended no. so like from the bottle maybe <laughs> someone yeah that, right that person yeah. better dodge so so in that situation i you know i think that you know when if 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 you were to get injured or someone else get injured seriously and it, it end up going to a law like a lawsuit type of excuse me a lawsuit type of situation you know, that, that's where that kind of plays out is that yeah. it, then lawyers start arguing and say, okay, well, what, what were you doing with the fireworks yeah, at where, the time? Where, where you the, know, where, like, where's the parents at? All the kind yeah. Of how are you, know? you, how are you using them? Oh, well, we were shooting them at each other. So, okay. Well, immediately your case kind of goes down because, um, yeah. you know, it's like, okay, well you, you, you it probably didn't read the warning labels. You would have ignored them anyways. And you were using it in a way that wasn't intended to be used. And you're like, you're 13 years old. How do you even buy this? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Where'd you, where'd you get it from? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which can, then can lead to other problems with the guy. Someone sold it to you illegally, but um, yeah, that's, that's uh, it, it's, it's a conundrum in the fireworks industry because, you know, as safe as we try to be, you know, you can't fix stupid. So. Yeah, that's very true. Um, 
So what do you see the future of the firework industry? Um, so I think that China is becoming more and more, and this is not just with the fireworks industry, this is everything. China is becoming a more and more difficult place to do, to do business. Um, and uh, that, that's really what Pyrobotics and Toucan are about, is because Pyrobotics is to say, hey, you know, China has sort of this mass of people and relatively low labor costs, or it used to be low. China's labor costs are actually getting quite high now. In fact, I think Brazil's labor costs are, are on par with China. But the problem is in Brazil is that their output is way less than China. So like that's where the that's where pyrobotics and the automation comes in is because if I can take a place like Brazil and modernize it with new technology that's as fast or faster than the production rate in China, you know, that then I have a viable solution, I have a viable alternative to China. Um, but uh, so I think that I think alternatives to China are going to be a big, um, <laughs> big part of the future. And unfortunately. The, the, the U.S. fireworks industry is so totally reliant on China, like 98% reliant on China for its production, that it has completely lost any domestic production capability. I shouldn't say completely, but there's no domestic production capability at scale. And, um, and so that, that industrial base needs to be rebuilt somewhere else. And that's going to take a lot of money and a lot of time. And so that's really what I've you know, focused my rest... I feel like this is going to be the rest of my career is building these alternatives and building technologies to advance the state of the art. And then also one really good thing from that, like I said before, like when you're in China, that problem of intellectual property that stifles innovation because there's just no benefit to innovating. If you take that production out of China and put it in a place like Brazil that has a, a fairly strong rule, rule of law and good intellectual property protections, then your ability to innovate just takes off. And I feel that once we make that transition, hopefully in the next couple of years here, I mean, with Toucan and actually making this a reality, this factory down in Brazil, once we make that a reality, the benefit of innovation is just going to wildly outpace everything else because now suddenly there's a reason to innovate. And it's not just innovate on, you know, what the, the product that you buy on the shelf looks like, but it's in how that product is produced as well, like, you know, the efficiency of the production. So I think that, um, you know, getting out of getting i shouldn't say out of china we're never going to get out of china All, you know i feel like the in the media these days there's a lot of like uh it's, it's very like black and white you know like china is having its issues and i don't think it's going to continue to support the world from a production standpoint the way that it has in the past i think there's going to be more diversification and, and you're already seeing that to, to a high degree um but it's not like China is just going to like blink off the face of the, of the earth. Like it's still going to be there. It's going to produce plenty. We're still going to buy plenty of fireworks long into the future from them. But, um, you know, you know, as, as even in just as the industry grows, the fireworks industry grows outside of China, um, you know, you're, you're going to need to add more production to keep up with that extra demand. So I think that diversification and innovation are, are two big parts of the future of the fireworks. Industry. I'm guessing there's no firework factories in the United States. Uh, very few. So like, and they're only really in those like technical pyrotechnics. So um, there's like, one that I know, well, there's like one I know of in Pennsylvania. There's one in Florida. Um, a lot of the guys that used to make fireworks, they, you know, have, you know, since passed away or, or, or out of the business just for, you know, profitability reasons. You know, it's a two liabilities too high, costs too high, just can't, can't make a competitive product. But there are a few companies making some very, very specialty things in the United States. But it's not, it's not a large percentage of the industry at all. It's like less than a percent. So besides like cost of production, other economic, economic factors, What's some other benefits of like doing firework factories overseas versus the United States? Uh, um, well, so 
if, if you can automate sufficiently, and this is actually sort of one of my core tenets of pyrobotics is like, if you can automate the process to a sufficient degree where it becomes irrelevant and it's not just automate, it's also, it's automate within the bounds of the regulations. So like, um, you know, you know, environmental regulations, you can't have like raw material, like chemicals, like wafting out into the environment, like, you know, like, but at the same time, automation, you have such a high degree of control and precision that for your, for the sake of your efficiency, you don't want that either. And you're going to, you're going to, you know, make it as efficient and, and sealed up and tight and, and productive as you can. And, and when you do that, just to be, to optimize your process, that kind of makes you compliant with like, say, an environmental regulation. And then if, if you can have that continuous process where you have people, um, uh, or you, you have the, the material going from raw materials to finished product without amassing a large quantity at any one place at any one time, um, you can also shrink down the size of your facility, which means you can fit it in more places. So the automation really enables production in other places. So the way I envision Toucan and Pyrobotics and sort of this, I imagine at some point this is all gonna merge into something. Like these are all kind of like disparate things that are now coming together. But as they merge together, I imagine this becoming, um, you know, a highly automated manufacturing company for pyrotechnics and other energetic materials that is an international company. So we're gonna have we're gonna have factories on every continent and they will serve those regions because honestly, shipping explosives is a costly thing to do. So I think- Yeah, I can that, imagine. Yeah, I, like, like last, you know, two, two years ago, when shipping was going crazy because of the pandemic, it was, the cost of shipping was more than the cost of the product. It was completely nuts. And back then, like you had shipping back late. Oh, everything, everything was bad with shipping. Yeah, it was a nightmare. And, and things have come down a lot now, but even still, like even on a good day, you're looking at probably like 20% of your cost is just in the shipping. So how does this business model work? Suppose, make this, suppose you have, is it like, a, is it like, you know, it costs like X amount of money to make a Roma candle. Then you have a percent markup. It's yeah. Make money off the, how's that work? Yeah, no, it's very, it's, it's actually a super simple business model. That's actually, I think, been one of the greatest benefits to pitching this to people is it's just so darn simple. And I, I think that some people even start trying to dig into it unnecessarily thinking there's more there, but there's not. So it's really just, you know, it, it's how many parts can you produce in the amount of time that you're in it, you, know, you have. And, and if you can produce more parts in that time, then you're reducing your per part cost. And that gives you your competitiveness. And if you're doing it with, with a high level of quality and a, a high level of safety and reliability, then you've got the full package. And then at that point, you're just, you know, adding, I mean, at this point in time, it's, it's pretty much just a straight markup. People don't really sell on value in the fireworks industry. There, there's a little bit between product categories and stuff like that. But generally speaking, it's just a straight percentage markup. Um, but I, I do think that as innovation starts to come in more, and you're able to protect that innovation and keep it, you know, proprietary, uh, that you can start adding more value and, and really price things based on their value to the customer rather than just on a percentage of the markup. So you talked about ingredients before. So ingredients, are they like the ingredients the same? Or can you buy low quality ingredients, medium quality, high quality ingredients? Yeah, I mean- Or is it, it the same? No, I mean, yeah, you can buy low quality. You, you, you don't want to buy, there's no reason to buy. It's the, the amount of, the cost involved in the, in the chemicals is so low compared to the cost of the paper. And the like, ingredients like pretty easy to find. Um, they can be easy. They can be difficult. It just depends. Like things like the perchlorates, because it's an oxidizer used in explosives manufacturing, it can be quite regulated. And it's used in a lot of other- types of, you know, non-fireworks explosives as well. So, um, and, and it's, I mean, even potassium perchlorate is even used in, in just all kinds of other, it's a, it's a very ba basic raw material. Um, and so, but because of its 
because of its function as an oxidizer, um, it can get consumed and be in short supply. So like that can kind of be an issue. Charcoal also sometimes can be viewed as a, a, a sensitive, um, like explosive material because it, if it's dispersed in the air, you get this air fuel mixture and then it can flash over and be like super, super destructive. So some people are some, some, uh, countries and municipalities or, or jurisdictions will um, regulate charcoal. Uh, and, and then sometimes you just can't find it. You can't find the right kind of charcoal. And I think that's something that I have to figure out for the future of the fireworks industry as well is like the, char, you know, charcoal is burned from organic matter. So if you have like, we tried to, in Cambodia, we tried to cook down coconut shells because there is a lot of coconut product, coconut oil production and stuff like that in Cambodia, and the and the shells were the waste. So it's hey, can we can we take this waste and can we turn it into charcoal that we can use in our fireworks? And it makes a remarkably pure char, uh, like the carbon content of of charcoal made from coconut husks is extremely high carbon content, and which is great for like charcoal briquettes for cooking because they burn hot and long. It's also really great for cosmetics, but for fireworks it was terrible because it's so dense with carbon that. Um, it burns so slowly, you don't get like any sort of energetic reaction out of it. And so you, you, we, we did have some circumstances where we got chemicals that were so pure, it actually was bad. It like didn't give us what we wanted. So there is kind of that balance of, you know, you want a high purity, but you don't want total purity because you're looking for some of these other properties within, you know, those materials. And, uh, you know, that can sometimes be kind of difficult to find, you know, those specific things. And with fireworks, it's almost like artisanal in nature. Like it's almost like oil paints, you know, like if, if a manufacturer starts, stops making that specific type of oil paint, it's really hard to replicate that exact thing again. So I think that from the inbound supply chain side of things in the fireworks industry, that's something else that needs to be modernized uh, to, you know, provide a higher volume of consistent quality of the type of quality that we need, that sort of thing. But, ge but generally speaking, I, I don't think there's a tremendous shortage in anything that we need. It's just, finding the exact right things can sometimes be tricky. All right, so two-part question. So I could be wrong, but me, when I think of fireworks in the United States, I think New Year's Eve and July 4th. Yeah. So what are the reasons are, are the fireworks are used in the United States? And then part two of the question, other countries, obviously I use it for New Year's Eve, but are some reasons other countries might use fireworks? Yeah, so I mean, yeah, the U.S. is pretty much only the 4th of July. Uh, New Year's, New Year's and Christmas, down south uh, in the southern tier of the U.S., uh, Christmas is more of a fireworks holiday. Um, certainly not as much as the 4th of July is overall, but, um, uh, there's, there's 4th of July is the major one in the U S then Christmas and new years, a lot of other places in the world, it's new years. And then like in India, there's Diwali and, uh, in, um, Brazil, there's carnival and there's a bunch of other, like a lot of religious festivals and things like that. will do fireworks down in Brazil. Excuse me. In Europe, it's uh, guy Fawkes day, um, which I, I, I always find it funny that they use fireworks to celebrate someone who tried to blow up parliament, <laughs> you know, like that's such a weird reason. I, 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 I need to dig more into that history. It just seems such a, such a weird reason to, to set off fireworks. But um, uh, yeah, so I, I think, and then like in Canada, Halloween on, uh, on the west side of, of Canada around Vancouver is also a big fireworks holiday. So like, yeah, you know, the world has its different holidays and things like that. And everyone uses fireworks differently. All the more reason to be an international company, manufacturing company, because we will get more consistency across the year of our ordering if we're selling to the world rather than just to you. All right. So next question. I suppose a firework is made on January 10th. Mm -hmm. When does it expire? Like, is it good forever? As long as it's kept dry. As okay. long as it's kept dry. Yeah. Okay. The, the, 
there's like, again, there's such basic chemicals that, and I, I shouldn't say as, as long as the integrity of the original product is kept. If you like, if there's like rats or something that chew apart the fireworks, obviously that's going to destroy them. But um, yeah, as long as you keep them sort of dry and secure, you can, I, I we had a fireworks club in, in Virginia called the Cracker Jacks that I was a part of years ago. And we had some shells from like the 1950s, like professional shells from the 1950s that were made in the U S that were gifted to us because the company that gave them to us, they couldn't, it was really expensive for them to like legally dispose of them. But by giving them to us, since we're a nonprofit kind of a thing, we were able to handle them differently. And we, we, we kind of repaired them and then we shot them all as intended, which disposed of them. But uh, every single one fired without a problem. Like, and, and they were like, you know, decades old. So at these firework factories, how does quality control work? Um, so there's sort of obvious quality control at the end of the production process where you're kind of like testing, see if, if what you produced, you know, meets the customer's requirement, but then you have to test throughout the process as well. So like, for example, just the chemical purity. So you're going to test the chemical purity and say, okay, is this, did I get what I ordered? And, um, it's almost kind of like winemaking in that way or making like, you know, whiskey or something you know, you have a bunch of sort of organic materials that are all going to have slightly different properties depending on where they came from, what farm, what soil, what water, you know, all these sorts of things. So sometimes you may have to blend them together and you want to make sure that that, you know, that, that input of materials is clean. And then as you start making the pyrotechnic stars with the, the, what you actually see burning in the sky, which are like, look like little pellets and you layer them up like jawbreakers. Like sometimes there's many different layers of color in them. Um, you know, you're going to be testing the draw. You're going to be testing the powder before it's rolled into a star to say, Hey, does this make the color I was looking for? And then you're going to roll the star and test that and say, is that, you know, doing what I want it to do? And then you put it into the, the insert or into the shell and you test that. So there's like that testing throughout the whole process because the, 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 the thing you don't want to do is like spend a lot of money and time making a whole big batch of something only to find at the end of that, that it, everything is wrong and you have to redo everything. Can someone do this? Can someone come to you and say, Hey, I want you to make me a firework that will say, Mary Jane, will you marry me and be staying in the sky for 20 minutes? Uh, 20 minutes is a long time for so a five fireworks. Minutes in, Even five minutes, minutes is a long time. Like, like 30 seconds, I think you could probably do okay. maybe a minute. Like the problem is, is like, if you're going to hang it in the air for that long, you're gonna have to put it up on like balloons or something like that okay. Which, or, or parachutes. Like there, there's a lot of pair. I shouldn't say a lot, but there's people have used parachutes in fireworks before. Um, there's, there's, this really cool effect called a wind bell, uh, which is, it's a super cool effect in the sky, super dangerous to set off anywhere near anything, even like remotely near anything. Cause basically like, you know, those little maple seeds and you throw them up in the air and they helicopter back yeah. down. Basically someone tried, someone did that in a pyrotechnic form. So when they, when the shell explodes in the sky, the, the pyrotechnic lights and makes like a silver streamer, but then there's a like a tail of paper on it. And so it spins and helicopters down, which slows the rate of fall. So those things can burn for, you know, 20 seconds or something coming down. But the problem is the wind can also take them for 20 seconds. Yeah. They can drift way off course. So, you know, using parachutes or balloons, um, there's a guy that there's a video online, they call like the ladder to heaven or something like that, where they lofted a balloon up and it towed up uh, like a ladder of pyrotechnics. So when they lit the one on, on the ground, it went like, like all the way up and it was like kept going up into the sky like almost like defying gravity and you didn't see that there was like a hot air balloon attached to it um so like you could do something like that but i mean to, to write someone's name in the sky would be kind of tough you can do it on the ground they have what's called lance work which are like little tiny flares and it's almost like a dot matrix printer you can or you can 
tie them to a frame in the in the shape of the letters and then burn it for like 30 seconds but that's on the ground getting it to fly in the sky i mean that's be a lot of stuff yeah so how's it you became involved with fireworks so my dad is an electrical engineer and at the time he was working for the new york power authority um at the james a fitzpatrick nuclear power plant in oswego new york and uh, we were living in syracuse new york at the time and the New York Power Authority sponsored a fireworks show for a big festival called Harbor Fest up in Oswego. And this was in the 90s. And my dad said, you know, I was kind of showing interest in fireworks, you know, going to my cousin's like secret stash and stealing his firecrackers and going out and blowing up G.I. Joe's and attaching SD's rocket motors to like matchbox cars and stuff like that. And so my dad said, well, why don't you go um, volunteer to be on the crew to set up this fireworks show? And it turns out that like, the prior year that show and, and had, how old were you at this time 17 17 okay yeah and uh the the prior year had been rained out so the budget from the previous year and the current year were combined so it's like a hundred and fifty thousand dollar fireworks show and it was with like one of the premier fireworks companies in the world fireworks by grucci and um it was like you don't start at that level you know like that's what you work your way up to you know, after like a decade of, of working in the fireworks industry is like getting to those level of shows. So the fact that I was able to volunteer at that level and just instantly hit it off with the crew and, you know, they, like I got like a, a, these, like a lot of Italians in the fireworks industry. So I got like the Italian nickname Dino that I was wearing. It's a great barbecue restaurant in Syracuse, New York called the Dinosaur Barbecue. So I had one of their t-shirts on and so everyone just started calling me Dino. And, and even like the, like subsequent years, I'd like walk onto the shoot site and be like, hey, Dino, you know, kind of thing. And uh, it was just really cool. Like it was the camaraderie, the family atmosphere, and then, you know, working out in the hot sun for like four or five days. And then, you know, dusk settles in and everybody's out in the harbor, like getting ready for the show. Show goes off. This amazing atmosphere it creates. And this music it was choreographed music and all digitally fired and everything like that. And then, uh, and then, you know, when the finale's done, you know, as the, as those trails of sparks are settling out of the sky, um, you just hear like, like well up, like off in the distance and people honking their boat horns and honking their car horns and you know, everything else like that. And it's just like, it, I was just like, this is so cool. Like I, I could, I could do this more. And, and then, and then at that point it was just, I finished up, uh, I finished up with college. I got a degree in media arts and animation from the art Institute of Pittsburgh. And I was going to go into film production or, or video game development. But what I really loved was production. I loved producing things. And fireworks was just like a live production. So I ended up working for a fireworks distributor in Pennsylvania. And then I kind of started my own company. And, and then I started a company with a, a Canadian business person that has, a, has a Canada's largest fireworks importer distributor. And, uh, and then, you know, Hong Kong, Cambodia, China. And it just kind of was like a slippery slope. Fell into it. Yeah. So we're in the Seattle area. There's, of course, there's a lot of tech startups here. So usually if somebody's a tech startup, they can easily explain, hey, I have a B2B, gaming, AI, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Most people understand it. And maybe you haven't had a challenge, but was it a challenge for you to explain to people what you're doing? Like as far as storytelling, like try, trying to talk to people who might invest or just regular customers, like yeah, I mean, what is you're doing? I wouldn't say it's hard to explain it to them. They get it pretty quickly. Because like I said, it's such a simple thing. We're going to manufacture fireworks and we're going to sell fireworks and we're going to try to implement automation to make it more efficient. And then there's all these other things. Like, there's a lot of deeper plan that I don't even mention because it just gets too confusing. But on the surface, I think people get it pretty easily. But the problem is, is that from a, from a, uh, like a founder, investor, pitching, fundraising kind of perspective, 
there's so much information, like so much educational information on how to prep for that situation where you're asking someone for that money to start a business and getting yourself and your business into the position to receive, you know, to be worthy of receiving that money. But it's that in like all of the educational information online and every incubator and everything else that's out there to support small business development is almost completely geared around technology. And there's, I would say there is no support for manufacturing startups. Um, the closest thing is like, like SpaceX, you know, I mean, it's <laughs> like, it's a huge jump from me to SpaceX, you know, and, and, and although there's a ton of parallels too, like, like rocketry is, is just supersized fire. It's, it's almost exactly the same thing, especially solid, like the old solid rocket boosters that were on the, uh, the old space shuttle. Like they were literally just the same rockets. It was like a, it was just like a massive size Estes rocket motor or the same rocket motors we shoot like fireworks rockets up in the sky with. So like, there's a lot of parallels there, but it's like, there's no, there's no like lower. What, one of my friends from Silicon Valley described as a, as a ladder, you're climbing a ladder and you got to find the first rung to pull yourself up to get to the next rung. The problem is the first rung from, from a manufacturing perspective is like, 12 feet in the air and there's just no way to reach it unless you build another ladder to get there, you know, and, and which is basically what I've had to do. And, and I've, I've tried wrapping and that's why high robotics is really focused on automation and manufacturing technology. Cause I figured that would be, if I use that as a route to get, do what I wanted to do through that sort of like industry 4.0 manufacturing perspective. But the problem there is as soon as you say, as soon as you say explosives or pyrotechnics, everyone's like, well, I don't know anything about that, you know? And, and then, then it's like the fireworks is another level of speciality on top of, you know, you know, the, the industrial automation and everything else like that. So that's like the, the concept is very easy for people to understand, but actually getting someone to support it is, has been very, very difficult. Yeah. I'm guessing there's not a hundreds of no people investing in firework factories. Well, I I've actually found in this, uh, in the, in the current, um, fundraising that I'm doing right now, I found that you, you don't re you're not really looking for people investing in fireworks factories. You're looking for people that invest in manufacturing, okay. like, like traditional manufacturing, which unfortunately, and this is the same like with tech, with, with you know, getting educational support to learn how to do a tech startup. There's a, like the tech investors are super well advertised. And it's really easy. They make them, they have good websites and you know, they have whole teams and staffs and, and sort of uh, intake systems to bring deals to, to them. A lot of them have their own incubators like Y Combinator. You probably, I'm sure yeah. you're familiar with Y Combinator. Like Y Combinator, all those incubators, they're just a way to curate and bring up deals that are, are better than ones that are out in the wild. Yeah. You know, it's like to develop these deals. And um, that's all for tech. None of it is for manufacturing. And so it's like, you know, you, you, you just like the manufacturing investors, those who would invest in this type of deal, they're completely unadvertised. And so it's a lot of cold calling. It's a lot of just following leads. And it's that, you know, they, they say it's like, you know, investing or, or fundraising is a numbers game. And it really, it, it, it's even more numbers game because nobody advertises themselves. So you just have to stumble into them within those numbers of calls that you're making. So, which, which is, I mean, in some ways that's, I mean, I might just be lucky, but in some ways that's actually been kind of nice because when someone does respond with a positive response, it's usually they're very interested. So talk about what goes into building a firework factory. I'm guessing you just can't pick a random building, put people in there, start making fireworks. It has to be like safety concerns. All um, this, all yeah, involved. I mean, like, like there's some of that. Actually, the, the, the structure of the factory in Brazil, the, one of the reasons why I like Brazil so much for doing this, this plan is that uh, there's, there's just like unused factories sitting around. So you can just buy one. 
Um, but even within that, they're not particularly advanced facilities. I mean, there's a lot of just brick stucco buildings. Um, a lot of buildings don't have doors because, you know, egress is a big deal whenever you're dealing with pyrotechnics. If, if something happens, you need to get away. You need to just turn around and just dive out of the building, basically. Um, but it's, I think it's less about the facility and more about the processes that you implement within that okay. facility. So like the, like the buildings themselves, like uh, fireworks is not a very high dollar thing. So traditionally people haven't invested much in the facility. If we go the automation route, because the automation is sensitive to the environment, like we do have to protect that more. So there'd be more of like a proper warehouse or facility that you're inside of. But even within that, like for example, um, if you, if you have a section that's very sensitive of the production line, that's like the most likely place where something's going to blow up, um, you can barricade that off from the rest of the line with only a small door that passes through the wall. And then maybe there's a, another door that opens and closes that each piece comes through um, just to limit the, the access of fire to get from, from one side of that wall to the other. But also that energy has to go somewhere. So maybe you put that on the outside wall of the warehouse and you don't attach the panels, like the steel sheet panels on the side of the warehouse, you don't attach those very strongly to that section so that if something explodes, all that energy can go out. And then even beyond that, that energy has to go out somewhere. So you don't want to put that up next to someone's like house where it's like something goes wrong, but then all of a sudden this warehouse wall just clobbers someone's house. So you end up having that, um, you know, open out into an empty field or you have some sort of earthen berms that deflect the force up into the air. So there's a lot of things that you can do. Um, like there's sort of more... Uh, like rudimentary things like an earthen berm or just the position or placement of something having an open field so energy can dissipate you know that sort of thing um but uh by and large like the facility itself is not overly special except for store storage like underground bunkers and stuff like that that can be a little bit more complicated but the the, the manufacturing and process buildings in a traditional factory are usually pretty simple so you're talking about automating the process how, mm -hmm. would, how would that work how do you plan on automating everything um so one of the really fascinating things when i was working in cambodia i so to go sort of one step before Cambodia, I had, there was a, the, uh, the DOT was authorizing third parties to certify fireworks devices for transportation, uh, you know, separate from the government doing it. Um, and I applied to get a license to do that. And I created a piece of software that allowed the user to import all of their, all of their own data, which then referenced that against the regulations and then submitted all the documentation to the government automatically and immediately spit back a, a, a certification for the customer. Um, in automating that, I realized that I could automate the quotation process to say, hey, you know, if a customer orders this, it's going to be this many boxes, we're use this much paper and this many pounds of chemicals and everything else like that. And all this stuff is in the database. So we know how much it costs us and we can then calculate the price very, you know, the, the system just spits out a price, a very accurate price very quickly based on the customer's requirements. And um, as I started dissecting all of that in that process of building that software, I realized that, hey, I can basically cut all, everything that a firework is down into some numbers and some simple equations. And if I can do that, I can use automation and build that back up again. So it's almost like that first principle, you know, you see the first principles, um, you know, engineering and that sort of thing. So, you know, you break it down to its sort of lowest common denominator and then see what that is and then try to build it back up more efficiently. And, and that's kind of how that came about. So one of not to get too far into all the different steps of manufacturing, but one of the biggest expenses is just paper and rolling tubes. Everything is like tube-based in fireworks. Um, and so just rolling the tubes 
you can, you know, you can already buy off the shelf a machine. I don't even have to develop it. Like the machines out of China are not particularly sophisticated, so we'll build our own machines over time that are more efficient and you know have a higher production rate and stuff, more reliability, better maintainability. Um, but you know, you can just you can just you know get a bunch of those machines, set them up, and just rip out like endless, endless, endless tubes. And then like oftentimes they'll take those tubes and just set them out in the sun to dry. But what if you're in a place that's raining a lot? But you can't set them out in the sun to dry. And so you get like an oven, make like an oven room and you put them all in the oven room to let them dry out. Or you can have like a drying tunnel. And so that's when you start getting into all these things like, okay, well, you know, you know, first we need to roll tubes, then we need to dry tubes. Okay, the rolling tube thing is pretty proven. A lot of industries roll tubes. It's easy to get a tube roller. So you get your tube roller, then you got to dry like mass amounts of tubes. You don't really want to rely on the weather because that's not always consistent and you can't control it. A, a room like a drying room might not be have the capacity for the amount that you want to produce. So maybe you have like a drying tunnel that just has like an endless amount that can be run through it. And by the time it gets to the end of the tunnel, that tube is dry. So, you know, you just kind of break things down and see sort of what's the better way of doing this or what's the optimal way of doing it. And sometimes you got to work backwards and then you find a different route that actually works out better than the one that's sort of the status quo. And I think that's another one of the things that I, I do fairly well is I, I look at the status quo and I say, okay, I, I, I think if we went this way, Instead of doing it the way everyone's always done it, if we did it this way, we could go way further with it than what this is doing right now. And, 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 then, and then you build that solution to go down that path instead of the one that everyone else is doing. So is the plan to have a factory in Brazil, one in Cambodia and one in China? Are you going to take everything to Brazil? No. So the, Cam the, the Chinese factories, they're all owned by Chinese companies. They're all separate companies. And then the Cambodia factory, um, that's owned by uh, the company in Canada that I used to work with. And that, that factory... Um, currently mostly supplies itself like the, the uh, their operation in Canada and they've just recently started branching out to serve other other uh, customers and markets and then for what I'm doing I'm just going to focus that on Brazil and then and then once we prove that in Brazil and we've reached that sort of high level of automation and I know I can say okay I can take that back to the US now because this is all a known quantity we have all the machines we know how much it all costs we have the system and the the procedures and the facility and all I have to do is copy that in the US and then I can um, you know have the same functionality in the U.S. and I don't have to pay for any of the shipping. Then at that point, I'll transition that up to the U.S. and then out to other markets as well. So you already talked about why are you going to Brazil, but during your research, did you, did you like, were you dissing in Brazil? Or like, did you, did you like do a comparison like Brazil and Venezuela? No, yeah. Brazil and Mexico, yeah. did you like do you compare yeah. different countries or did you diss, were you dissing in no, Brazil? No, 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 no. I mean, Brazil was kind of a happy accident um, and then it just ended up working out really well. Uh, you know, obviously everything started in China. We did the thing in Cambodia. when. We were looking at Cambodia initially. We were also looking at like Vietnam or, or like there's a, a small factory that makes sparklers in Thailand. We were looking at the Philippines, you know, just, you know, and, and even that the, the, uh, um, the business person in Canada who did the Cambodia factory, he's now doing an operation in Mexico. And so I don't think there's any like, there's no one right answer to that, to like where you do it. It's just really what you see in it. If you, see it's a, if you see it's valid and it's comfortable and you're willing to commit to it and make it a reality, then just go do it, you know, because, you know, it's like oftentimes, oftentimes there's not, a, there's not a right answer. It's just the choice that you make and what you do with that choice is, is the, how you get to a good outcome. So in my mind, tell me I'm wrong, like for, for me, from your company, you, you're going to control the process, you're going to control the process from the time, the ingredients all the way through it gets shipped to a store. Are you controlling the whole process or? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's about, that's about it. I mean, like it's, it, it can, you know, there's a lot more nuance in it than that. Um, like I, I see like when the, when the fireworks are delivered to some random, you always see like these random fireworks boots. Yeah. Like, I see once it gets delivered to that firework booth, then you're done with it. 
So I wouldn't even deliver it to that booth. So there, those, those booths are being supplied by larger distributors. Okay. So, so I'd be supplying the distributors. The distribu okay. Yeah. Okay. And in fact, and in fact, in our fundraising process, um, what I'm trying, what, what my ideal sort of configuration of investors is, is that I'd like to have a good chunk of the funds coming from outside investors that have nothing to do with the fireworks industry because their perspective is not, they're going to come in with an outside perspective and won't cloud, um, it won't cloud sort of how we move forward with status quo logic. Um, but then at the same time, I'm, I want to have a bunch of fireworks importers, like major fireworks importers as investors, because then I don't need to worry about who the customer is. I can just say, okay, if you invest half a million dollars in this, in this startup operation, I'm going to give you exclusivity as long as you hold shares in the company. And I'm not going to sell to anybody else until I exceed your capacity to, to, to you know, take my product. And if I can get like two or three of those major importers, I mean, it's going to be five, seven years before I ever exceed what they're going to consume. So it's like I have my customers are built into the company and they they're also helping to pay for the operation. How does it work as far as like negotiating with shippers to ship your stuff? That's actually super easy. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 I should say it's easy in Brazil. In Cambodia, it was extremely difficult because Cambodia doesn't have a deep water port that can accept the large ships. So everything had to be trans shipped by a, a feeder vessel down to Singapore. And then even from the, and, and this, this may have changed since I, I, I left that factory in 2019. Um, so things that may have changed since then, but at the time we had to go through Singapore and then Singapore through Sri Lanka and then Sri Lanka through the Suez that's Canal like, into the like, East coast. Like, it's a, a lot. lot of transfers. Whereas when you're coming so, out of so China, many things can go wrong. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of jurisdictions and like some countries wanted like military, like they wanted like a frigate to, to like escort, what? like escort the, cargo ship into the, cause they're just not used to fireworks. Like some, once people get used to fireworks and they understand that they're like fairly well-regulated things. And there's actually, I don't, I don't know there's ever been like an accident on the water that started with fireworks. Like there's been, fireworks have been involved in some ship fires, but like the fire started from something unrelated. Um, and it just like burned into yeah. the fireworks. And, and uh, so I, I don't know um, that there's ever been a major accident, but even still like people are, rightfully wary about it, but I think they kind of get a little over the top because they just don't know what they're getting into. So they, they respond very like bigly. Oh my God, fireworks are coming in get the, get the Navy here, you know, kind of thing. And then like, once you do it 10 or 15 yeah. times and the Navy's like, stop calling us. Yeah. Like this is super routine. You don't need to be calling us every time. And then they're like, oh, okay, fine. All right. Just come in and dock or more or whatever you want to do. And so before you talk about the freedom scare, right? Is there such a thing as like called the business scare where like it rates how good or bad is it do business? The business countries? score. Um, that's actually that the Freedom House, that's kind of part of that. It, like, okay. it's, it's, not, it's not really a business report. It's more of a, a, a like, like, more like a government perspective. It's like a DC based firm. So like it's more of a government assessment of the other, the other countries. And, um, but they do have things like the rule of law and, you know, political freedoms get covered and stuff like that. Uh, and those types of things can definitely affect the accessibility of a country whenever you're, you know, trying to go into do business with that country. So, I mean, like it's, I, I, a lot of people hear me talk about these freedom house reports because I think it's just such good information. And especially when you're doing international business and like nobody in the fireworks industry really pays attention to it because there's, there's no other alternative than China right now. So like, it doesn't matter what country is doing this or that, they, they have to go to China because that's where the production is. Now I know like, um, in Thailand, my wife's cousin lives in Thailand, and I'm kind of mixed up. I think every six months, a, a year, he has to leave the country and come back, right? Yeah. 
is, is, is Brazil kind of the same way or what you want to do? I don't spend enough time in Brazil to hit that. They call that a visa run. Yeah, visa and that, run. And that was very common in China. People would come down to Hong Kong on a visa run because basically as soon as you cross that border, like you'll get a 10-year visa with unlimited entries, but you can only stay in the country for 60 days or 90 days or something like that. So at the end of that period, you got to go out of the country, but you can literally walk across the border and walk back and it resets okay. that 90 days okay. or whatever. Um, so... Brazil, actually, they just changed their visa regulations. I didn't need a visa for the last two years, mm -hmm. but now, now I need a visa. They changed. Because basically, there was no reciprocity between the United States and Brazil yeah. on, on a, a not needing a visa to enter the country. So since Brazilians were required to get a U.S. visa, Brazil said, screw that. And this, yeah. is, this gets into that very American way of, like, Brazilians are very much like Americans. Yeah. Like, well, hell, you're not playing our game, then, yeah. then I'm not going to play your game, you know, kind of a thing. So, yeah. um, so are you the only founder for the company? No, I have, so we, I basically have two other founders. So there's my partner, Nico, down in Brazil. Um, he's actually a native of Uruguay, but like I said, he speaks three languages and he, he's been in the fireworks industry for about 10 years or so. And he has all the relationships down there. So like he, he's the guy, like, and he's about one of the best people I've ever worked with and, you know, super accommodating, super friendly, always trying to help you out. Super, super nice guy, very capable, great at solving problems. I mean, it's just like, I, I didn't think of him as the co-founder until like, six months ago and I was like looking for another co-founder and then I was just was in the apartment in Brazil with him and I'm just I'm, I was just like he's sitting across the table the light like, ball came on I'm like why am I not making him my co-founder yeah. you know like and and then um and then I also we have a, a another co-founder uh, her name is Melissa Sai in China and she um uh she is uh the sort of the China side of things okay. so she's she's the one that's going to help us out with getting all of the you know, all the machines and helping us source chemicals and everything else like that. I'm a question though, a lot of startups fail because co-founder, you know, breakup, you want to call it right. How do y'all keep, how do y'all make sure you're on the same page and y'all don't have like a co-founder breakup? Um, you know, I, I think that you know, I, I did a lot, I, I read a lot of the information on Y Combinator because Y Combinator puts out a lot of good content on that sort of thing. And I think one of the best bits of advice that I got from them was like, if, if you don't know your co-founders, like if you haven't worked for them for a time, like if you didn't have any other prior experience with them, you know, it, the, the likelihood of a breakup goes like way up. Yeah. Um, with Melissa, I've been working with her for more than a decade. And with Nico now, we've been working, you know, very closely for the last two years on this Brazil project. So, um, you know, and I mean, when I go down there, you know, he's in the apartment. We were living together in the apartment down there. and We, you know, have to deal with roommate stuff when we're down and all that. So, and, and, and it, you know, we're, I think that we're, we're really good match and, and with Melissa, even though she's a little less able to get out of China and come over, you know, to, to Brazil, the U.S. She will at some point, but it's harder for her to move around. Um, but, uh, you know, I've worked with her for so long. Like, I, I call her my most trusted person. How do you decide how to break all the tasks up? Like, how do you decide who does what? It's pretty simple. Everyone has very specific capabilities, and that's kind of broken up by geographic location and also language, you know, language and cultural, cultural ability. So. For me, most of my stuff is, is strategy and the sort of engineering. I don't want to say engineering because I'm not an engineer, but I mean like, you know, the technical engineering aspects of automating and optimizing the production systems and then the, the overall strategy of bringing it all together and connecting it to the U.S. market, finding the investors and that sort of thing. Um, and then uh, Nico, he's really good with just being on the ground in Brazil and doing all the problem solving, having all the relationships. Um, uh, he was actually, he was in Beijing before the holidays and he got called by the Uruguay embassy to an event 
where he was in the room with Xi Jinping and his own president. Oh, wow. So, so like he's like remarkably social person, like his ability to just, you know, chat with people oh. and, you know, build those relationships is like, is that like another level? Like it's really, really good. So having him down there, you know, oftentimes he'll just say, I'll, I'll be like stressing about something. He'll just say, George, uh, don't worry about it. I'm just going to go take care of it. I, I know what to do. And then he comes back and he's like, okay, it's done. Okay. And, and then with Melissa, you know, she's a hustler. Like you're talking about that Asian hustle. She's got that Asian hustle and she's kind of the same way. Like anything you need, you just say what it is. And, and, the, and I think one of the best things, if you are, are going to work with someone from another country, even if you're just sourcing things from another country and you're trying to find that partner that you're going to work with in business, I think that the ability to not only understand like the words that you're saying to them, but they understand the intent of what you're asking for. And then they can extrapolate further so that when they go off to do something, they're not like coming back every 10 seconds yeah. to clarify yeah. things. They just go off and they do it and they come back with what you wanted or more. And if you can get, if you, if you, if you have a relationship like that, I mean, that's a, that's a golden relationship and you, you want to keep that and run with it. So don't tell us the details and give us like a, 30 times for overview of how y'all decided how to split the company up, like who got what kind of equity and stuff like that. How, what those conversations were like. Yeah, I mean, at, at this point, the equity uh, thing is really, it's more strategic than anything else. Um, you know, like Nico and I kind of have equal equal roles, but I kind of talked to Nico and I said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give me a bit more equity than you. And the reason why is because investors want to see that there's like a, 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 a clear decision maker in the company, someone who's going, to, someone who's going to be, you know, for investors and just for the for the you know sake of problem solving within the country is like the deciding voice, and um, and so that's why I got a little bit more than he did, and then with Melissa, she's just a little more removed just because of the nature of being in China, her 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 inability to travel as easily as we can um you know and, and she's going to be a little bit more uh she's gonna be a little less involved in the business like she's gonna her her involvement's gonna manifest i i feel it's gonna manifest more as like intense periods of intense bursts of activity like focus on the company and then she'll sort of trail off into doing other things and then when we need her she's gonna come back and focus on these things so for that reason she's not she's not getting quite as much equity, but you know, and she didn't really want it in the first place, but I, I feel it's necessary. Again, like it's a strategic choice to say, Hey, these three key people that um, are critical to the success and function of this business need to be legally tied into the business and like part of this business. Like they can't just be employees that could, you know, when the going gets tough, they're like, you know what, this is not worth the money I'm being paid. I'm, I'm walking, you know, kind of. So speaking of legal stuff, was it like a legal challenge to do the legal paperwork? With all three being different countries? Uh, no, no. I mean, the U.S. from a from a from a um, incorporation and like shares, like the issuing of shares, that doesn't matter. It's okay. super super simple. I think I I have a friend. I asked because I, I was I was worried with with Melissa if 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 I give her shares, is that going to cause some sort of tax issue? Yeah. In that you know, and because she's not a U.S. citizen, um, but. Uh, I have a good friend who's a lawyer, uh, like a big, like a high-level corporate attorney, attorney, and he's his wife's from China. And he said she's also part of some business, has some equity in some businesses, and it doesn't affect her at all. You know, like if, if you know, she she claimed if if there were dividends or a sale or something like that where she got money in exchange for that, she would have to uh, you know report it like anyone. Okay, so changing subjects a little bit. Tell us what you do for fun. Woodworking. 
Woodworking? I wouldn't say woodworking. Con- like contracting. Like, um, I bought this like hundred year old house, and the joke always is, is that um, I when we when we tell people we bought a hundred year old house, hundred year old house, I say that it was a hundred year old crack house, and my <laughs> and my wife says no, 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 it was a hundred year old meth house, and so it was basically we got it for all the other houses around us are, are like we got it for like half of what the neighboring houses are because it was in su- such rough shape, but the location like we got you know legitimate views of Puget Sound right out the door and um, sunsets in the front yard every single day. You know, the construction of the house has got that, you know, that style and that sort of vintage that's just, you know, very well-built house. And it just needs a lot of interior modeling, updating, and everything else like that. So, um, you know, it, it's like there's so many problems in the house. And like my wife and I were just kind of arguing about this the other day. There's so many problems in the house that it's hard to finish any one thing because you'll do you'll you'll work on something until it becomes less of a priority than something else and then you want to jump to the highest priority thing and so it's it's kind of like you ha- you'll ha- you end up with multiple different projects on the go and you're just kind of tamping them down so that the you know the 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 thing that's sticking out and is most problematic is being addressed at that time and and uh for for the last couple of days it was we wanted i we I, I rented an excavator and like dug out all around the house to like level the ground out because we're putting new sidewalks and stuff in but i can't put the sidewalks in because the weather is too cold so now there's just a giant dirt pit around the house which is probably bad timing on my part but um i'm glad that we got that the dirt hogged out because it really needed to be done and then um i just got tools everywhere and i can't i can't put them anywhere because my workshop we have this nice garage with like an apartment on the top it's gonna be when i fix that up it's gonna be my office and workshop but the downstairs I got no cabinets. There's like tools laying everywhere. So it's like, I, I can't do anything to get the tools cleaned up. So I got to build the cabinets, but I can't build the cabinets because there's this beam here. So I got to move this beam, but I can't, but if I'm going to put cabinets here, it's going to block the wall. So I want to insulate it first and just on and on, you know, it's like on and on. And on. So but that, I really enjoy doing that. It's like, that's my Zen whenever I'm just like sawing stuff and covered in dust and everything else. And how long have you lived in Tacoma? About three, uh, three years now. And you moved from Hong Kong after you said? We, well, we lived in Hong Kong until 2019, came back, and then there was the pandemic. We spent like a year and a half at my parents' house in Pennsylvania. Okay. And then once things kind of shook out, we knew what was going on. To, 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 to. So why Tacoma? It's kind of random. Yeah, no, it is a little bit random. And, and there really is not a great reason other than that house, man. Like we... So you determined to go move into a crack house? <laughs> yeah, well, no. I mean, the crack house wasn't part of the deal. We wanted an old house. We wanted an old house as a fixer-upper because I like the value of buying something used. Yeah. I buy ton- I, I, I hate retail. When you're in manufacturing and you understand the true cost of things and how much gets added in shipping and retail costs and profits and stuff like that. These extra fees. Oh, gosh. I just can't. I, 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 unless the value is super, super high, I have a hard time paying retail prices for anything. So I buy so much that's used. And that translates into the house as well. So like buying a brand new house just like didn't make... A, it was, had no um, character had no history if, if you buy a new house. And, and, and I like the projects. I like the fact that it's a project. And if I have a new house, I don't have any projects to do. Did you have to replace all the pipes? Uh, not yet. They're all galvanized or cast iron. Okay. So we're, it, it's kind of, again, like it's whatever the priority is at that moment, then we'll replace it. So some of the pipes have been replaced and some haven't. And I think we, we want to we dig out the basement and then and, and we'll re- redo all the plumbing. Once we do so that. this is like y'all's forever home, so to speak? I don't know. That's a hard thing to say right now. I mean, like our life has been so transient that it's, it's, uh, you know, it's difficult to say how long we'll stay. I, I, we're going to, I think we're gonna be here for a while. I mean, yeah. we got, we got kids, they're in school, they're going through like, you know, the, the different, you know, levels in the, in the school districts. So my, my, both of them are in elementary school now. 
my daughter goes to middle school next year. So like, you know, I, I, I was fortunate in that my parents were able to keep us in a stable location for our entire high our, our K through 12 career, almost our K through 12 yeah. careers. But, um, you know, I think you make your friends in those times and, and you, you, you know, the, um, that consistency of a location breeds comfort and stability and all that sort of stuff. So I, I think we'll stay. So when you go like to different places, like does your family ever go with you? No, no, that's actually a really weird thing. Like my, um, uh, my wife travels almost as much as I do. So we're often like ships passing in the night. We might just see each other for like, you know, a few hours as one of us is arriving and the other one's heading off somewhere else. But, um, uh, uh, yeah, I almost never take, when we were in Asia, we took the kids more cause like we'd be going to closer Asian locations. And so it was, you know, my, and also Asia traveling around Asia and hotels and all, it's just way cheaper than here. Like it gets crazy expensive. And I mean, I, yeah, it is what it is, but like traveling with a family in the U S can be really pricey. Yeah. Yeah. I can. I can. Um, so here's a question for you. Yeah. What's something like when you first started after your journey, right? Something you first started, like you really struggled with, right? Like it kicked your butt. But now looking back, you're like, why did I struggle with that? That's the easiest thing ever. Um, like, why, did I, why did I struggle with this? Yeah, I, I, I don't know that I have a specific thing that I can cite as what I struggled with. I think I would answer that question by saying that it's more about my confidence in my own ability to handle anything that comes at me. And that's really only started to happen in the last few years as I've seen like, you know, similar problems like repeating and I'm like, Oh, well, I handled that one before and I know I can handle it now, you know? And I've gotten to a point where it's like, basically I'm fairly confident that I can walk into any situation. I can build what needs to be built. I can fix what needs to be fi fixed and any curveballs that get thrown at me, I can, you know, pivot around and work around. I mean, like find solutions and stuff like that. So I'm pretty confident my capability likes problem solve. So, um, you know, with these companies and this work that I'm doing in Brazil and everything, it's actually been pretty smooth, at least from my perspective, like in my head, it's been smooth. And I, and I, I think maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's a difficult thing that I have, I have a hard time with. And I don't know that I've actually gotten any better with it, but it's like in my own head, I'm confident. But when I talk to other people, I talk with that same confidence, but I don't have a lot of like justification for why I'm so confident. Um, you know, I can't say, oh, because I, you know, have this education or I have this degree and that's why I'm confident in my ability to do this. It's just like, I'm confident in myself. And I know, and if you look at my history, I've never like run myself off a cliff. I have all, I have all of my appendages, <laughs> you know, I've, I've, you know, I, I'm not living on the street, you know, I mean like everything around me is good. And like, I've been able to handle whatever comes at me. So, um, you know, I, 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 I don't know. Like, I mean, and, and then my, my, uh, my father's last job or one of his last jobs in his career was, um, human performance. And that gets into like error reduction and things like that. Cause like, it's, like I said, he built, well, he, I didn't know said they worked a new nuclear plant. He built nuclear plants his whole career. So there's a lot of like risk manage, management involved. In that. Well, and, hopefully anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, no, they're definitely, they're definitely, they're definitely, at least in the U S there's, there's a lot of it. Like it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I get into these conversations about nuclear energy with some people that are like super against it. And I, and I, I'm like, look, I've got my dad that's done this for like decades. Like it's not, people don't realize know. nuclear energy is the best and safest, you know, it's like, however, yeah. comma, when shit goes downhill, it's, it goes downhill. Yeah. I mean, the only, the only problem with, the only problem with uh, nuclear is that it's, uh, it's expensive. You know, that's about it, you know? And I mean, yeah, the waste is the longevity of the waste and the effect of the waste in the environment is detrimental, but that can be managed, you know, if, if the regulations are there and the, the things are followed properly and stuff like that. And I mean, what's worse, you know, like storing the nuclear waste or like the, what's it called? The BP 
the deep horizon. Yeah, right. Yeah, like, like that oil spill. Yeah, you know? yeah. No, I mean, well, if you look at like Fukushima, you know, everyone like freaks out about Fukushima. But the reality is, is that the 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 building, like the reactor building and the the the, the reactor vessel. There's actually like a like it's like a really thick steel and concrete, like super real. Like the rebar in that concrete of those reactor vessels is so dense yeah. that even before they pour the concrete, you can't see through the rebar. Like they're super heavily reinforced. And that prevents any of that material from any of that radioactive material from getting outside of the reactor core uh, or of the reactor vessel. And then, and then there's all kinds of cooling systems and everything yeah. built into that. So it's like when there was like a cascade of failures and it wasn't like any failure on the part of the engineers or anything like that. It was just like unforeseen circumstances that exceeded the limitations of the uh, equipment well, it like, like of the reactor. It was an earthquake. It was an earthquake. Well, so it was an earthquake and there was a tsunami and the earthquake like ruptured. I, I can't remember exactly how it all went down. The earthquake like earthquake ruptured like the, the, like the conduits that protected the electrical system that ran the pumps that pumped the seawater to keep the reactor cool. So then when the tsunami came in, it disabled the generators and, and, uh, or the electrical systems, which then the pumps couldn't pump and therefore yeah. it melted down. And so, but then even after that, there's all these other measures beyond yeah. that. And it's kind of the fireworks is the same thing. So, you know, my dad and I have a lot of really great conversations about that sort of thing um, because, you know, you, you know, you've got a, you have a, 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 you have sort of a risk that needs to be managed. And then, um, you know, you, you build the systems and facilities around that to ensure that, and, and I say, I, I think this is one of my signature things that I, I feel like a lot of people don't think about, but for me, manufacturing fireworks, like building a factory, it's not if the fireworks factory is going to explode, it's when the fireworks yeah. factory explodes. So if you're doing everything, if you're designing all these systems and processes, procedures and facilities, with the expectation that you're going to stop any explosion from happening, you, you are not prepared when the explosion yeah. happens. So you always develop and design everything so that, you, you know, when the incident happens, it is managed to such a degree that yeah. it's, it's not I'm guessing critical. I'm guessing you do like, so. like, not rehearsal, like, like evacuation practice, evacuations every once in a while. Like, yeah, I mean, ideally that would be the case. I mean, in fireworks factories, I, oftentimes it doesn't happen. Yeah. It's, it's hard to describe people how primitive and rudimentary these factories are like like if you go onto youtube and search around like even some of these even some of the automation that's in china today it's so beat down there's like exposed you know like <laughs> flywheels and stuff and it's just waiting for someone's arm to get ripped off like i mean it's it, people like there's like the two blowing machines have these blades that come down i have a video where the guy literally reaches in while the machine's running to pull a scrap piece of paper out right before the blade comes down where yeah. his hand was i mean just on and on and on like yeah. and, and so like Yes, there's some level of technical sophistication in the way things are being done now, but it it's it, it needs so much more. Yeah. And, and and that doesn't and that's not like people think that's a burden, like it's going to be like too much cost or something like that. But that's really not the case. You know, your cost comes when you have that major accident, mm -hmm. an employee is killed or severely injured, and then you're paying out huge amounts in either claims or lawsuits or insurance or whatever. You know, like that's where the that's where you know the financial burden comes from. It's not from being safe and protecting yeah. your employees you know, like that's that's you know it's critically important so from your point of view what's been some pros and cons of being an entrepreneur um that's a rough one i, I it's not, shouldn't say it's tough not it's tough not tough to come up with an answer for that but i've been an entrepreneur for so long that it's just like breathing air for me like i i i haven't had a desk job i haven't had like a job job uh since 2008 
And, uh, and I've been working remotely since that time. So like all of this stuff that's like modern today is really very, um, uh, you know, normal for me. Um, but I think probably that if I, if I had to pick something that was the, the toughest would probably be like trying to find those investors because it's like the fireworks industry is, or I, I should say, sorry, not the fireworks industry, the United States is so not focused on manufacturing physical goods anymore that, um, you know, finding fundraising for that kind of a thing in the United States, just unless you're doing like, like silicon, you know, microchips and stuff like that, you know, getting, getting uh, TSMC out of Taiwan and into Arizona or wherever they're trying to build that facility. If you're not falling under the chips act, like it's really, or like something space related, it's really hard to get any kind of manufacturing going or like support for manufacturing in the United States. So that's been pretty. So any advice to someone who wants to be an entrepreneur? Um, just go do it. Honestly. Like, I mean, there's, I, I think of it like, you know, everything I ever learned, I, I got from like a video game. And like one of the things about video games is you die and then you respawn and you try it again, <laughs> you know? And so, um, you know, assuming that you don't like physically die in the real world, you know, you, you can try it again. And, and, you know, just, you got to build up that resilience to, get knocked down and then just get back up and just get right back into it again. You know, and, and it, 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 I think it comes pretty easily once you do it a few times. And I think that's where that confidence, that sort of like undefined confidence that I have. That's, that's what I, that's what that is, is it's that it's that I've been knocked down enough and I've gone down so many dead ends and I know that I can just backtrack and then find that, try to find that main path again, that whatever comes my way, I can handle it. And, you know, once you, once you figure that out and you become confident in your own ability, then you, you kind of become unstoppable. So talk about the uh, American Power Technics Association that you spoke at. Oh, APA? Uh, yeah, so the APA is, uh, there's two organizations in the fireworks industry. There's the APA and there's the NFA. Um, the APA was sort of the first organization, and then the people that uh, started the NFA kind of spun off of that because they kind of, there were certain factions within that. One was like more, APA is more into like federal regulation and, uh, advocacy in Washington, D.C. and that sort of thing. And then the, the NFA is more um, like connecting buyers and sellers and, and importers and manufacturers and stuff like that. But, uh, but APA is cool. I mean, it's, it's where all of the major companies, we meet once in February and we, we meet once in September or October. And uh, it's where all of the, uh, most of the regulations, we have like committees and we develop guidelines that we give to the government and they will oftentimes just implement them you know, as we, as we design them and then they'll, you know, they'll have some feedback and that sort of thing. But generally the, the, the fireworks industry kind of sets the standard and then the standard is approved by the government. And then once it's approved, then we're required to adhere to that standard. So I think you spoke about alternative supply chains. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. I mean, that's what Toucan Fireworks is like two, yeah, Toucan is exactly that. And, um, uh, really it was, I, I wanted to call it, uh, Toucan Fireworks, the or Toucan, the future of fireworks or something like that was what I titled that presentation. But they said, well, we don't want you advertising one company. So we're just going to say you're like diversifying supply chains, <laughs> which is fine because I like the term and I put it into my LinkedIn profile. But um, yeah, that was just talking about Brazil. I think it, it's such a novel thing. People have been to Brazil. It's not that no one's ever gone to Brazil before, but even like the biggest companies have gone to Brazil and they got nothing out of it. So the fact that we were able to export a fully compliant tested container is really um, uh, kind of a monumental achievement. I'm super proud of that. It's actually one of the things I'm most proud of. And um, now I'm just trying to build on that. 
So how do you find your customers? I'm, I'm guessing, you know, it's not, it's not B2C, it's B2B. But how yeah. do you find your customers? Like word of mouth? That's... They're all on my phone. They're right here oh, on they, my phone. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the industry is so small that I, I know all of them. Yeah. And, and um, there's really, you know, it's one of those things like, what do they say? Like there, there's that ratio. I forget what the name of the ratio is called, but like 20% of any system, like 80% of the control is held by 20% of yeah. any given system. I forget what the, there's a, there's a, there's an actual term for that. But it's kind of the same thing in fireworks too. Okay. So so there's ten companies that control like eighty percent of the industry, and okay. and and I I they're all on my phone. I'm meeting with a bunch of them in the next couple of weeks, and uh, you know, well, that's that's who I just focus on. And then going out internationally, I think that question, your question, probably applies a lot more to the international space because, or I should say, outside of the U.S. Because um, the uh, um, I don't know as many people out in the world, you know. Um, that, that are buyers. So that's something I think there'll be a, a more concerted traditional sales effort as we fulfill the needs of the U.S. market and start branching out to other markets. We'll have to do more sales. work. So Pyrobotics and Toucan are two separate companies, right? Yeah, yeah, as it stands right now, yeah. So like, like I said, they may merge at some point. I mean, Toucan's really more of a brand okay. than it is, is a company. Okay. Um, I use it as the face of the company because it's a nice logo and people yeah. can kind of connect with it. But... Um, uh, the the uh, you know the, the, the those these things will merge probably at some point in time. So the main focus is the pyrobotic. Um, actually, from a practical standpoint, like day to day standpoint, it's actually more in Toucan, and I'm it's trying and I'm going to kind of draw. It's, I'm going to draw my work from pyrobotics into Toucan because okay. because pyrobotics was always kind of designed as a sort of like an engineering, like a machinery equipment engineering and fabrication okay. company. Um, but that need and and I was thinking I was going to do that in the U.S. Uh, because if I'm not producing the fireworks in the U.S. At least I can build the yeah. technology in the U.S. But the problem is, is that the, it's such a niche that it made a lot more sense for me to, you know, be able to build the machinery and then have a factory to implement that machinery in. And then it becomes a much more profitable situation. So the plan is eventually combine the two into one company. Yeah, yeah. So basically Pyrobot and, and it, or, or they could be, they could ultimately end up being two separate companies, but they just serve different functions on like the same set of tracks. So it's like, Pyrobotics will will be developing production technologies, and then they'll get tested and implemented in the Toucan factory. And then, as that company expands, they'll get implemented in in, in factories all around the world. All right. So this is kind of be like a convoluted question. So yeah. you already talked about both companies, some right? Mm -hmm. But can you talk more in detail, like how these companies got started, what you're focused on now, what the future vision is for them moving forward? Yeah. So they they both got started kind of again. It, it's the the, it's the issues that the, the fireworks industry has with China right now in that it's the problems every year just keep getting more, they get, they get, they, they, they get more severe and they're, they're coming closer together, more frequent and more severe problems with each passing year. And it's, uh, I kind of liken it to if you have someone who doesn't have like their life together and every time you're around them, like they're a constant drag and like they they bring their problems into your situation. And like, they just like, you like them and they've been a good friend, but like you just, it's, it's hard to have them around kind of a thing. I kind of look at that as China and the United or China and fireworks industry, at least. And I think more broadly, the U S can, you know, other businesses in the U S can say the same thing, but from the fireworks standpoint, it's like the issues that they bring to the table, just keep getting more and more problematic. And like I said, they'll, they'll always, like fireworks will always be made in China. We'll always be buying some amount of fireworks from China. But if we really want to 
have a stable future in the fireworks industry. We have to start building alternatives that we control. And so pyrobotics enables the ability to be efficient and manufacture fireworks efficiently and safely anywhere else. And so um, really both pyrobotics and toucan spawn from sort of the same problem of, of um, uh, supply chain issues in China and the relationship between China and U.S. and doing business. Do these names mean anything? Are they anything special, just random names? Oh, I mean, I, they're kind of random. Pyrobotics, I just happened upon that. You know, it's pyrotechnics and robotics put together, which I was like, oh, that's cool. That works out. And then Toucan, literally, I was sitting on the balcony of the <laughs> apartment in Brazil, and I saw a Toucan fly by, and, oh, wow. and I said, that's... Although, um, the Toucan, the, the fact that it says Toucan brand fireworks, that's actually an homage to the old firecracker brands of um, that were made in Macau, like back in the... 50s and 60s and okay. 70s and stuff. They they always had like an animal theme, so it was like gorilla brand or giraffe brand or you know chicken brand or something else like that. Yeah. Um, so back to entrepreneurship, right? Well, let me back backtrack. Mm -hmm. So from your point of view, how is this all successful? Like, what 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 has to happen for this to be successful? So we need to get the factory up and running. My my philosophy is that if you have a if you have a a, a space to build something like a workshop or a factory. If, if the first thing you try to build doesn't pan out, you, you still have the facility to, that can make things and th then you can retool the factory or, or redirect the resource of the factory to something else. So it gives you a very stable position when you have a factory and you have the ability to create and build things that then you can create and build things in different directions if one doesn't work out. So that's what I'm trying to get myself into that position right now with buying a factory. And then once we buy that factory, the um, uh, the because we'll have investors from the fireworks industry, they'll be they'll have first dibs on the output from that factory. And then as, as we grow, um, we'll st start selling domestically in Brazil because that's an easy market as well as South America. And then uh, ideally, we'll probably also start selling internationally relatively quickly, like within the first decade. And, um, uh, and then at some point, we'll make that leap to we're actually setting up factories in other countries. And, uh, and then that really starts expanding the operations quickly. Then so. follow-up question, how does this fail and how do you prevent it from failing? Um, probably the biggest failure, the thing that I'm most concerned about right now is, is geopolitics. Um, you know, it's something that's totally outside of really any one person's control, certainly like any business's control. Even like Apple is having problems with that right now, you know, like, um, and so geopolitics is, is definitely something that concerns me and I, and I want to get into the factory with the equipment as quickly as possible, because if anything happens to China's ability to supply fireworks or the equipment to help make the fireworks, um, it's, it, it, like, it becomes so much more difficult because then the, then the whole fireworks industry is on its heels and, and it's like everything is just a more expensive, time-consuming process. So I, I, I want to get this started as quickly as I can so we don't have to like reinvent, completely reinvent the wheel. Like we can you know, kind of take the baton from where China is now and then, you know, clone it, make a separate baton, and then we can have two sort of races running at the same time. That way, if, you know, you have some redundancy. If one fails, the other one can pick up the slack. So back to shipping distribution. Is the plan like you make all the fireworks in Brazil, then ship it to all distribu distribu distributors, or are you going to like make in Brazil, ship to storage facility in the United States somewhere, and then to the storage facility in the United States, ship it to distributors? Uh, no, so the distributors are, are because the industry is small. The distributors are the importers. So oh, they, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. So like okay. I said, like we'll have a couple of of uh, I'm guessing like two or three U.S. importers will also be investors, and so they will get exclusivity on the output of the factory 
until we until they you know can't take any more, and then we'll start selling to others. But um, that will that will take uh, you know years before we exceed okay. the capacity of their of theirs to consume. Is there something to show that like this state um, fires more fireworks versus another state or anything like that? But can you rephrase? Like for example, does Texas like have a, like higher percentage of fireworks? Oh, oh, oh! Second um, off. Yeah, it's pretty pretty even across all fifty states. No, I mean, I, there's definitely like fire. We the way we sit in the industry is like a fireworks friendly state. Like there's definitely fireworks friendly states, and there's less fireworks friendly states. I don't, I don't know that there's any state anymore that totally bans fireworks. Everyone thinks the fireworks like regulations are a problem. They're getting more restrictive and all that. It's actually the total opposite with fireworks. So when in the 1960s, um, there were was not a lot of regulation. And so there's a lot of people making things that were really dangerous and getting them out into the public's hands. Back in the bottle rocket fighting days. Well, not even <laughs> not even the bottle rocket fighting. This is like back in like the this is like the true M80 like military gunfire uh -huh. simulators. Soldiers uh -huh. pocketing them and walking <laughs> off the base with them, taking them home, like playing around with them on the Fourth of July, stuff like that. You know, um, you know, and and then the term M80, uh, you know. Kind of has a historical significance, really only in the United States because of its military designation as like its identification number, and um, and 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 when you when you when you when you hear someone talk about an M80 today, it's really not a firework, and like the industry tries really hard uh, to educate people to say these are not fireworks; these are illegal explosive devices. They they were made with no regulation. They're probably made in someone's basement. You don't know who made that fuse. You don't know how fast the fuse burns. You don't know how much powder's in there. You don't know what sensitivity is like. It is like I always tell people like guys don't mess around with these M80s and like if you find like like real M80s people are saying don't mess around with them because you they're they're so dangerous and you don't know what they are like there's no predictability to them and um and and whoever sold them to you there's they have no insurance to cover you if you get hurt so like just stay away from them and and the 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 the, the compliant legitimate fireworks are so much cooler anyways it's like colors and styles and they shoot at angles and all kinds of other stuff so you know just stick kind of to the uh, the uh, you know more. Sorry, I got off on a small tangent no there. So no I was, yeah. what was the what was the original question again? Um, was was what what are more states like more? Uh, oh yeah, right, okay. So I remember where I was going with that. So basically, that that um those the, those safety and regulatory the lack of regulations and the lack of safety because of things like M80s and then later these derivatives that are like homemade, they cause a lot of very serious injuries and and that really shocked the public and say, look, we got to ban fireworks and so. Through the 70s and 80s, a lot of states banned fireworks completely. And then into the 90s, the bans are still mostly there. And then in the 2000s is when things started to change. And uh, there was a lot more regulation. There was a, a lot better regulation. There's a lot more internal uh, oversight, like the, the American Firework Standards Laboratory doing testing in, 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 you know, at the factory level. And so as that increased the safety, the injury rates went way down. And when the injury rates went down, we could then, as an industry, go back to states and say, hey, look. This is this is why you created these regulations because there was all these industries. But look how this line has gone down because we've regulated. We've we're now better regulated and have a more reliable, safe product. And then they could use that as justification to say, "Hey, look, okay, we 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 got to sweeten the deal to get you to change the, the law in the state to allow us to sell and for people to use. So what if we put a, an added tax onto that that goes immediately to first responders? So a lot of the states that were more like stalwarts and not wanting to change and legalize fireworks, they um, basically said, okay, well, if we can get like this extra tax and it goes straight, because it was often the fire departments that were fighting it, like fighting the change in the regulation. So now if the fire departments and first responders 
the people who have to respond to fireworks incidents are getting some kickback from the fact that they have to deal with more fireworks incidents. In you know, then now suddenly you know they become a little more flexible about you know like allowing things. So so things the laws in the United States have really really opened up for that, and, and it's not as you know, it's you know. It's not like a lot of cross-border business. Like it used to be like you could buy in one state, but not in another state. So everyone from one state went to the other state and then brought him back and yeah. shot him anyways because yeah. the police don't, the police can't keep up with it, and on, no. especially on the 4th of July. And, you know, the, the, the injury rates are low enough. And if people are using them properly, like it's, it's usually not a problem. So earlier we talked about how like people work in the factory. You don't have to, have to be scientists or chemists, right? Yep. But I'm guessing they can't be knuckleheads either, right? Yeah. So when you, what's your process for making sure you don't hire knuckleheads or you hire the right people for these factory jobs? Uh, pretty much. I mean... I have very limited experience with that in, in Cambodia because when I was, you know, when you're sourcing from China, like that's all handled by the factories in China. You don't really get into that sort of HR type of thing. But um, in Cambodia, I think that the, it was, re it was just really obvious. Like if someone is, if you have any concern that someone's going to be a problem, just get rid of them yeah. because it's, it's not, it is not, there's no amount of training that's going to, you know, change who they are or how they perceive things or how they react or, or, you know, the irresponsibility they display and that sort of thing. So I think it is, you know, kind of like, I don't know, like maybe for like military intelligence or something like that. Like you really gotta, you really gotta make sure people are level-headed. They're going to make good decisions that they're smart and, and they, you know, are responsible. And, and, you know, I think nine times out of 10, that, that type of person will stand out pretty clearly. Yeah. So it's not yeah, like you have, to, agree. you have to search for them too hard. Yeah, you know? I agree, yeah. They, they make themselves easy to be found. There's no yeah, doubt about yeah, that. Exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. So during this entrepreneurial process you're going through, do you have a mentor or anyone who's mentoring you? Yeah, I, I have a couple. Um, actually, um, uh, one of the, uh, Margaret from, uh, Margaret Dawson. Yeah, from the yeah. from the from the the seminar that you did at the yeah, I at talked the about startup a, week. I talked yeah. about a couple weeks after she talked to you. Yeah, she said she had a really great conversation. Yeah, and me. and well, and I I said, hey, can we do this again? She said, yeah, let's do it like monthly. Mm -hmm. So uh, you know, I've been meeting with her. I mean, it's only been a couple months since yeah. then. So I I met with her the last couple of months, um, and she's been really helpful. Uh, I I think she brings you know, she and I connected because of our like expat history. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, you know there's a lot of things that she was saying and, and things she encountered and her perspectives on things that just like, just squared up exactly yeah. with mine. And so that's why I was kind of like laughing in the back yeah. of the room. It's like, Oh my God, that's so true. You know? And uh, so she's, she's been, I, I think she's a, she's a recent addition to sort of my circle that I, that I, uh, I highly value. And then I have another uh, guy who's actually a, um, uh, he's a former opera singer um, uh, back in his younger days. Um, his name's Dominique. And uh, he, uh, we met in Hong Kong and like, he's been, you know, very supportive. Like he doesn't support me, um, in like a practical sense and like making connections for me, but he's just like, when I just need to bounce an idea off someone, I just need to talk to someone that's outside of the situation. Like he's, he's living in uh, London or not in London, but he's living in England somewhere, yeah. somewhere outside of London. And, and he, um, you know, I'll, I'll message him and say, Hey, what do you think of this? Or this development just happened, you know? And I kind of talked to him about that. And then, um, there's a bunch of people in the fireworks industry. Yeah. It's it's hard with the fireworks industry because I, I want to I want to involve the fireworks industry more in this process, but it's difficult because they all think the same way. And yeah. it's like you you can't I can't ask them for their input because they're just gonna walk down the same path yeah. they've always been walking. So it's really been I, I have to have like the fireworks industry's buy-in to this whole deal. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, I can't rely on them for like 
any kind of guidance because they're just going to lead me down the same path they've been walking for the last hundred years. And next, are you mentoring anyone? I would like to, and I try to. I mean, anytime I find some, I'm not mentoring anybody directly, like on a regular basis, but uh, I would absolutely love to, you know. Um, and certainly when I encounter people that sort of have that spark where you know that, like, you know, they're, they have that, I, I don't know how to define it, the entrepreneurial spark, you know, like you, you know it and see it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you see people like that, like I, I, I want to talk to them and I want to like see where they're at and what they're doing. And of course I always offer my help if they ever need anything or they just want to you know, run ideas past me. Like that. But I, I'd love to give back, you know, more than I am. I mean, unfortunately, unfortunately sometimes it's just as hard to find someone to mentor as it is yep. to find a mentor, you yeah, know, like, cause, know, right. cause like this space is, this space is very niche, just like the fireworks industry and, and, you know, really functional, high caliber people in the entrepreneurial space. Like it's, special kind of person and honestly a lot of them are just super busy they just don't have a lot of time to devote yeah. to other things that's been a good question like we talked about being busy right yeah but like how do you personally instead of being busy or productive right because everyone's busy i'm yeah. busy watching yeah, Game yeah, of Thrones. yeah, yeah. like yeah. how do you like transform being busy actually being productive yeah i mean i think that it's just a matter of doing it it's just a matter of doing it, honestly. That's kind of a dumb answer. I feel like that's like a non-answer, but you just have to do it. Like when you have something, when you, when you're, you know, you, you know what you have to do. Like your problems are, your problems are all on the table in front of you and kind of like working on my house, you know, like there's always going to be one problem that's sticking out that is preventing you from moving forward. So you know that that's the problem you have to deal with right now. Um, or it could be the opposite. It's, it's something that you know is coming down the road and you want to head it off before you get there so that it doesn't become a problem. And you know, if you procrastinate or you're just not into it that day, you know, you're not like, you know, you know, you're not very on, you know, I don't think there's anything to do, but like grind your way through it, you know, and, and sometimes that can be, you know, difficult and, and, you know, I, but I find usually once you get going, like once you get into something, cause I mean, like if, 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 if you've made it this far where you're having those problems, you, you already enjoy being an entrepreneur and so you just have to kind of grind through it and once you get started into the grind i find that that usually turns on your competitiveness or your drive you know to to really get into it and so then you just kind of start you know and then then you get into the problem where you're up till 4 a.m for three weeks straight and, and you get like no sleep and you're like overcompensating for the for the uh you know for the problem solving is there anything that could happen for you to say, okay, I'm going to stop being an entrepreneur and go back to a nine to five? Is oh, anything, I think about that all the time. Is anything like, is you have like a red flag personally? Or no, happen, no, like, no, no. I think about it all the time. I think I, I, maybe that's just me, but I kind of feel like that's every entrepreneur is like, damn it, this is so hard. Like why? Like I just, I'm, I'm done. I quit. I'm done. I'm going to go work at a grocery store because it's just easy and I don't have to think about it, you know? But then, and, and I kind of did that during the pandemic um, because I had, you know, we'd moved back from Hong Kong and then the pandemic struck. And of course that tossed everything up and nobody knew what was going on. But I, but I, and I had, because we moved back from Hong Kong, you know, my work in Cambodia had ended and my work in Asia had ended. Uh, well, I mean, that sort of phase of it had ended. And, um, and I was like, you know what, there's this pandemic, everything's all wacky. I'm not really working actively in fireworks right now. So I'm going to start doing gig work. And I started delivering groceries. And of course at the, you know, right at the peak of the pandemic, that was like super hot. You know, like uh, uh, working Instacart, getting from, buying from Costco, dude, like you could make like 200 bucks an hour just like buying stuff from Costco. It was crazy. And that was cool, but it wasn't scalable. And so like I did it for, I did it for like, I don't know, a few months, four or five months. 
And I was like, wow, that's like just, it's like, like grabbing money out of the air. It was just, just out there, grab it and just do this small bit of work and put it in your pocket and just keep doing that one after the other. But you can't scale it. You can't grow too big with that. And so then I, I found a, 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 a gig app, which I think actually is based out of Seattle here. It's uh, called TaskRabbit. Yeah, I know them. And um, they were really great because I was allowed, they had like a, uh, it was like odd jobs, like all kinds of disconnected odd jobs. And so I started doing uh, like, like home improvement, remodeling, like what I'd like to do with my own home. And that lasted for almost like two years through towards, you know, through the, through the bulk of the pandemic where I was working as a contractor. But that too ended up becoming like, a, like I had to like turn it into a business. So it's like, even when I get, even, even when I had the opportunity to do something that wasn't like an entrepreneurial, I guess yeah. it kind of was like the gig work, the gig economy is, is actually quite entrepreneurial yeah. anyways. But then I just wanted to scale it. And so it's like, I'm just, I'm just going back into the same life and problems that I had before. If I wanted to get away from entrepreneurial uh, or entrepreneurship, I, like I just end up falling back into it no matter what. So it's just, I think it's, you know, entrepreneurs aren't entrepreneurs for no reason. Like yeah. they, they are entrepreneurs because that's what, that's who they are. Yeah. So I'm guessing on a day-to-day basis, you have like different priorities you want to do, right? It's like, for example, tomorrow, how do you make sure you start off priorities one and two versus priority number 99? Um, I do struggle with that a little bit, but like I said, again, they're pretty obvious, like the real priorities, like stuff that needs to get done because you can't move forward or it's going to become such a huge roadblock. Honestly, when my procrastination affects other people, that is the thing that bothers me the most. Like, I don't mind if I procrastinate and it harms me, but if it starts harming my family or starts ha- harming my, my co-founders or my investors or customers, that, that will motivate me very, very hard to just stop whatever, the, whatever I'm procrastinating on and just do it. Um, but you do get into some of those situations where you don't really have, like, you're kind of just doing work that's your work and it's not going to affect anything too far outside of that. And I do kind of get stuck in that and, and having a hard time picking out the right things you're getting, you know, YouTube black holes and stuff like that. <laughs> YouTube shorts is like yeah. the worst thing ever created. Like I, I feel like, and even with my kids, it's kind of the same way. Like they, their attention spans are like, you know, the size of a pebble yep. because they just have this constant stream. And my, my daughter's this morning, I was, you know, she was watching TV before school or watching YouTube on the TV before school. Um, it's a, such a different concept, right? Because like when you're talking about when you were a kid, you had broadcast TV yeah. and you like watched TV. Yep. And yeah. now it's like, no, the TV is just a screen yep. that streams information into it, which I guess is technically the same, but it, you know, feels different. But she, she, she was watching uh, YouTube shorts and she um, uh, was just, it's kind of like flipping through the channels, you know, like she watched five seconds of a short. I'm like, it's a 15 second short. Just watch the other 10 seconds. Like, do you, can you not watch 10? And she's just like, ah, head, you know, kind of a thing. But I mean, like, I, I do feel that like, I, I do tend to go down some rabbit holes occasionally, but oftentimes they're productive rabbit holes too. I, I think that exploring in those random directions is also often how I find a lot of new ideas. So I think there's a balance there. Like, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to, it's kind of like, you know, being healthy and eating food. You know, you don't want to like eat candy for every meal. And that's the only thing you eat. But if you never eat candy, what's the point of food? Exactly. You know, like, I mean, like, you know, you gotta so, have chocolate cake once in a while. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. I mean, eat every, not every day for breakfast, maybe, but I made, yeah. I made cinnamon rolls the other day and, and I, and I, um, they were so freaking good. I ate like six cinnamon rolls, like <laughs> slathered with cream cheese ice. I'm like, this is so unhealthy. Like I'm to gain. So I mean, I just ate like 4,000 <laughs> calories. But like, and it's like, it's so good. Ah, you know, 
But I mean, you know, you, you got to do that every once in a while. You know, I think that, uh, yeah, I, that, that goes back to like one of your first questions of, you know, uh, mental health and everything mm -hmm. else like that. Like if you don't allow yourself to enjoy what you're doing, if you don't, yeah. if you don't, and for, for me, like, uh, I was listening to a documentary on my way driving up here about retirement and like boomer retirement, you know, and sort of the issues surrounding that. And I think about that because that doesn't really exist. Like the concept of a pension yeah. anymore, like doesn't exist. So it's like, for me, I love what I do and I'm happy to do it until I'm 80 years old. Like I'm happy to do it until I yeah. heal over. Yeah. Like, does, I, 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 and, like, yeah, I don't see retiring. Yeah. I mean, why? Like, I mean, I mean, okay, fine. Maybe, you know, hope, you know, uh, if all things go well, I'll build a, a nice big business. You know, like I, I could see this, you know, toucan pyrobotic sort of combo, like going down that path. I, I could see that becoming, I don't know, a few hundred million dollars a year in revenue or something like that. Um, and if I could build that business and I own a good chunk of it, you know, I can, you know, sell it or whatever, or, or I can, you know, back off a bit and parlay that into something else, something more philanthropic, more mentoring, you know, something like that. You know, like, there's a million things to do, but Start a manufacturing VC fund yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like, but, but then that's it. That's a lot of work on its own. I don't know. It's just like, again, like, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you're an entrepreneur and, and there's, there's not really there's no such thing as retirement and there's no such thing as vacation. Like I don't take vacations. I go to Brazil all the time. I go yeah. to Asia all the time. Like, you know, like one of the customs that my, my partner down in Brazil and I, Nico and I, we, we have what's called sushi feast. And a lot of people don't know this. And I didn't know this until I went down to Brazil, but Brazil actually has the highest population of Japanese nationals living outside of Japan. I had no idea. They've got over a million Japanese nationals living in Brazil. And most of them are all in uh, Sao Paulo. So the sushi scene in Sao Paulo, unbelievable there's some really really like high-end like michelin starred sushi restaurants and it's so it's so cheap when you go out into the countryside and all the factories are always buying you food and stuff like that so um like we don't really have a set per diem i, I mean i we need to institute one like i think in the next round of funding i'm going to get some of those policies and become more concrete policies we don't really have a per diem but i always think like okay if i had a per diem and i, I and i've spent like none of it for two weeks that i've been here then we can drop like a bigger chunk of change yeah. on a really nice sushi feast, yeah. right? You know, so, but, you know, and, and, and I think that's a good way to cap off the trip because we always, you know, A, the factories are so far from Sao Paulo, Sao Paulo airport, we really do have to drive there the day before so we can be ready to leave the next day. But that night that we're there, we always go downtown and have sushi yeah. feast, you know? And that's just like a little way, it's, it's doesn't contribute to the business at all. It doesn't, you know, do anything other than give us like a little bit of a, a little bit of a, you know, moral, uh, morale, yeah, a little moral, morale yeah. bump yeah. to our morale, um, you know, at the end of a long trip and as we're, you know, progressing and stuff like that. So I think that as an entrepreneur, and I, I mean, you see that in companies all the time, you know, these like appreciation, employee yeah. appreciation, stuff Definitely. like that, or company trips, you know, things like that. So you got to do some of that stuff or, uh, you know, if you're, if, if you're going to live that life, you got to integrate some of that fun. So with you here in the United States, one person China, one person Brazil. What time zone you're in the company off of? Oh, I mean, thought about that. I mean, it just kind of flows. flows so okay. yeah, I mean, so Brazil is five hours ahead, and China is eight or nine hours. Oh, no, sorry, on the other side. Uh, yeah. it, it, there's there's like a, and I've lived on the East Coast for so long. I always want to say China's like twelve or thirteen hours, but from here it's like eight or nine hours. And then uh, Brazil is five hours ahead from here. So like usually as soon as I wake up in the morning, I'm talking to uh, 
Brazil. And then whenever I'm uh, towards the evening, I'm talking to China. Okay. So it just kind of, the day kind of just flows through that. And, and okay. I think it's just natural, like the cadence works itself out. Yeah. And isn't Brazil actually like, like east of Florida? As far as like yeah, map. yeah. So it's it, Brazil. Things like directly below us. It's no, actually, it's actually like east of a, a what west or east of. Florida, yeah, it's east. It's east. It's far east too. Uh, well, so Brazil is a huge country. Yeah. I mean, again, like Brazil is as is, is. I think I have to like get Google Maps out and draw the the ruler on the on the map. But like, I'm fairly sure that Brazil north south is the same as the United States east west. Okay, it's a huge country, yeah. and like a huge chunk of it is the Amazon rainforest. A total deviation here, but it's just an interesting, you know, airplane fact as you're staring out the window while you're flying around. When I first went to China, you fly over the North Pole, basically. You fly up, up over, come down through Siberia and into Beijing. And when you're flying over the North Pole, it's like a desolate wasteland of snow and ice. And if you went down there, even if your plane survived and everybody survived the crash, you would all die of exposure because you're in like an endless desert of yeah. snow. Going to Brazil... You know, oftentimes I'll stop in like, uh, sometimes I fly completely over the Amazon, but oftentimes I'll stop in Panama City and then you kind of hop over the, the, the Amazon rainforest from there. But when you start flying over the rainforest, it's just like, oh my God, like this is worse than the snow. Yeah. In the snow, you've got like polar bears and penguins to worry about. You crash into Amazon, I'm going to be like eaten by a puma and yeah. then like digested by giant mosquitoes. Yeah. I mean, like there's so many things that would kill you there. And um, it, that's it. That's this like total total sidetrack. But it was just interesting, you know, flying over these very like remote, desolate places. But Brazil, like, it's a huge, huge country, and um, uh, people don't people don't. I, I I don't think they realize that. Like one of the first concerns that uh, was addressed when we started talking about this, someone said, "Well, aren't you worried about like um, uh, like drug uh, gangs in?" Central America. And I was like, oh, I didn't think about that. I should, I should have to think about that. And so then I started looking around and, and, and it wasn't until I actually flew down to Sao Paulo for the first time. And it's like, it's like someone in, in Maine worrying about something happening in Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, it's like just geographically, mm -hmm. no one's going to come from, yeah. you know, like Nicaragua yeah. and come down to like yeah. abduct you and take yeah. you back to Nicaragua. <laughs> it would be like economically wouldn't make sense no. for the, for the drug, no. for, for like the no. drug gangs. So it's like, um, you know, you, 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 people think that these things are a lot closer together, that these countries are a lot smaller. Brazil is a massive, massive country. And even from a shipping standpoint, one of the first reasons why I went down there is because people were like, oh, well, um, uh, the company that's backing Toucan right now, they, that, that sort of started as like a feasibility study of what, if, if Brazil was even possible. And they thought, oh, well, the, the shipping, like I mentioned, was so expensive a few years ago, it's probably cheaper because Brazil or Sao Paulo is closer than China. But when you actually, again, do the, draw it on the map, you know, like nautical miles going around South America up to Florida or up to, to the uh, Southeast US, it's almost to the mile the same from Shanghai to Long Beach, California. So it's like, it's just like, it's big. Like the world, yeah. the world is a big place. You know? It is. And talking about going like, you know, rabbit hole. So somehow I started following this guy on TikTok. Yeah. I I'm, I'm think he's in America, right? But basically he's on this boat in the Amazon. Yeah. And he's traveling the Amazon. And like, he, he paid, he's paying like, he paid $30 a day, I think. And like the 20 people, they all sleep in hammocks, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying yep. the, and like, he's, they're just going like different villages and stuff, drop supplies off. It's pretty interesting, right? Yeah, yeah I, I couldn't. I wouldn't want to do it, you know. I, part of me would want to do, you know, for the venture like that. I like, mean, mosquitoes, 
fucking and some anaconda ten foot anaconda jumps out follows you know yeah yeah i think i think a lot of these things there's like a there's like a perceived romance to the yeah. to this lifestyle you know it's like even even i think about it sometimes like you know travel because i like that that old john candy movie planes trains and automobiles yeah, yeah, you know like oh, I yes. plane, i'm on planes trains automobiles today and like i'm going through all of the modes of transportation yep. today and uh and then you know when you know going back some time in you know early 2000s in china and I mean, this is nothing compared to people that were there in like the 80s and the 90s because it was even less developed then. But even going back to the early 2000s, like you'd go on, you'd go on a train or an airplane or something like that, like way sort of like you're going back decades in time, just, yeah. just flying across that other side of the world. And, um, uh, you know, there's still some, you know, you, you get that feeling like, oh, I'm like Indiana Jones, mm -hmm. that scene of Indiana Jones is on the rickety plane yeah. with, and he, he's like the chickens are everywhere and he puts his hat and he's like, oh, I'm just going to. I'm so tough. I'm going to sleep on this horrible, horrible plane. Yeah. And then like, as you get older, you're like, screw this. Yeah. Like, you know, get me my bed, get me yeah. my hotel. Exactly. I want yeah. a massage and yeah. I want my sushi. And like, exactly. like I don't need the aggravation anymore, but you know, it's still there. I mean, like, I, I think that the, the total travel time for me to get from here down to the factories in Brazil is uh, it's like 30 hours of air tra transit. And then that usually gets me there at night. And then I have to spend the night and then it's like eight, eight to 12 hours depending on traffic conditions to get from Sao Paulo airport from Guarulhos airport in, near Sao Paulo out to the factories. And, and so it's like three days, literally like time changes and all. It's like you leave your house and three days you get to where you're going. And then when you go home, it's three days back. So you're like six days in transit. So I'm guessing you're not going there on Monday no. and coming back a two or three days. Like you no. go there, you go and stay at least two, yeah, three weeks. At least right? two, three weeks. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's a that's a really weird thing to think that like on, on any given trip down there you're adding six days of transit. Like, yeah. It's crazy. So, but you know, whatever. I mean, like if you if you if you're looking for an opportunity, you're not going to find it on your corner. Like no. I mean, it's like you know, if it's easy, someone's already yeah. occupied that space. Yeah. So George, anything else that I asked you that I haven't, or anything else you want to talk about? Oh, not really. Um, you know, I think that one thing I was thinking about earlier that I might talk about was just something like uh, optimistic to kind of cap things off is, is um, that, you know, we, we like live in remarkable times and technology and sort of everything that we have at our disposal in the world. Like it's kind of a super time to be alive. I know it can seem chaotic sometimes, like the world might be falling apart in certain ways. But I think when you look at things broadly, like, um, you know, everything is getting better. And things are much improved over where they were in the past. And, uh, you know, you know, from an entrepreneurial standpoint, like, I, I don't think there's a better time to be trying to build something or create something or, you know, get into it than, than right now. I mean, like, it's a, it's, I think it's a really great time that we live in. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm appreciative of it. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Like, I always laugh when people say, this is the worst time ever. I always say, well, as soon as they make a time machine, what you want to go back to 1850? Yeah, yeah, right. Like what year, you know, 1947, you know, like what year? Yeah, yeah. Right? Well, and you look at, you look at things through like rose colored glasses too, because like you look at your past as being like this comfortable thing. And it's like, okay, cool. I want to go back to the 1990s because I want to sit on my stomach in my, my family room of my parents' house and eat chocolate chips while I watch Saturday morning cartoons. Cool. Like you were uh, like a, a kid and a complete waste of space because you couldn't do anything. But now like you have all this technology and there's AI coming out and there's VR. Yeah. And there's like all these like, these things that you dreamed about back then, like yeah. now is the time they're here. So like, you know, make something and do something with it, build something, you know, create something like, don't just, you know, wallow in what was, you know, yeah. like the, the, every, everything good 
in everyone's lives lies in the future. So you know, build yeah. build it into a good one. I mean, what was the question? Like, do you want to like go five hundred years in the, in the in the past, five hundred years in the future to stay here? I'm like, I want to stay here. Like, I don't go back five hundred years in the past because it's a black plague, all that kind of stuff. You know, yeah. And like five hundred years of future shit. It might be no earther, you know, like, yeah. you know, totally no. Well, and you, and you waste so much time, like thinking about those things yeah. or it just builds. I mean, like, I don't know. I, I find, I find my Zen building things. Building so things, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. If I, no matter what it is with the business or, you know, a new set of stairs in my basement, like it's when I'm building something, I'm happy. You're happy. It's okay. Yeah. Um, can you give us your social media so people reach out to you? Um, honestly, like I'm kind of horrible on social media. Uh, just LinkedIn's the best way to reach okay. out to me. Um, you know, if you just, if you just search George Tasic, there's really, I don't think there's any other George Tasic out there. <laughs> there's a couple of Tasics, yeah. uh, but there's, you know, I'm the only, I'm the only, well, no, sorry. There's my dad, but he's not on social media at all. <laughs> so like, <laughs> I sometimes get like LinkedIn requests, people looking for my dad yeah. and I think, but, but no, just, just LinkedIn, George Tasic. Okay. Uh, you can send me a message there. If you have any, you know, if you're, if you're interested in the idea and you want to invest, if you need mentoring help, mm -hmm. if uh, you just want to reach out and say hi, whatever, just send me a message. I'm, I'm happy to chat. All right, George, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate Thank it. you very much. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. Remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you, and remember to be great every day. Don't you know,